Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. My name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, uh, and I am delighted to be back with you again tonight. It's session number 102 tonight, uh, and we are going to, we may even, potentially, um, uh, get through Gandalf and, and Frodo's conversation. <laughs> we might get Frodo back to sleep by the end of class tonight. So we'll see about that. Uh, no promises, but that's uh, uh, that's uh, more or less the goal. Um, so um, anyway, hey, welcome everybody. Glad you could join me again. Um, the Our uh, discussion board has been fantastic. So you'll remember last week uh, we were having our unfortunate little uh, uh, downtime on our website, so I couldn't get to our discussion boards uh, in time to uh, to get that all ready before class. Um, but uh, so I didn't have I didn't have anything from our discussion board. And so I figured when I went back uh, today that there would be this like huge wealth of posts that I hadn't read yet. And boy, was I right, like way exceeding even my expectation on that. Um, some really fantastic posts, uh, some of them so awesome and substa uh, substantive that I, I there's no way I can share them with you on screen here. But um, let me. Um, uh, let me first, however, before I get too far into uh, the posts, uh, do some announcements. So just uh, 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 two quick sort of reminders of things that I think I've announced before and then one really cool uh, announcement of a thing I haven't announced before. So the two quick reminders. One, we're doing our promotion on Tolkien's Wars in Middle-Earth, uh, the uh, uh, the course that John Garth taught with us uh, here at Signum, basically covering in, in much more detail the, sub, the, the substance of his research into Tolkien and World War I um, and its impact on, on The Lord of the Rings and, and sort of Tolkien's whole world there. Um, Really, really wonderful stuff. If you've ever read Tolkien uh, uh, in the Great War by John Garth, wonderful, wonderful book. Of course, it's on a lot of people's minds now with the Tolkien uh, movie out. Um, and uh, anyway, so I strongly recommend the book, of course, and, and uh, that was a fantastic class. We have our Anytime Audit uh, on special right now in sort of celebration of the of the release of the, the Tolkien film. Uh, so through Sunday, this coming Sunday... Um, uh, we're still we have that on on sale for only seventy five dollars for the tuition for that anytime audit. So I hope you can take advantage of that. Um, uh, by the way, saw the Tolkien film again uh, this past weekend. Loved it even more the second time. I I can't even believe that I love that movie. But I love that movie. I mean, talk about movies I was super not excited about when it was in production. But I thought it it was great. I I. Just, I really like it. I'm going to have some more discussion uh, and would be delighted to take your questions and things. If you want to, you know, you know that I like it. If you hated it and want to <laughs> voice your opinion and hear what I have to say about your objections, be happy to do that. Um, I'm going to have another discussion. Maggie Park and I, who, who have uh, discussed both of the trailers when they were when they dropped earlier on, are going to you know get together to talk about the film. We don't have an exact time on that, but it's going to be sometime soon, probably in the next few days here, uh, Saturday at the absolute latest. So 
stay tuned for that to uh, our social media, uh, either mine, uh, my Twitter account at Tolkien Prof, or uh, also the social media outlets for Signum and Mythgard. We will uh, uh, we'll do that. Tony says he cried a lot. Dude, dude, <laughs> me too, me too, man. Like the the scene at the end with GB Smith's mom. Oh my goodness i cried like a baby the first time i saw it and pretty much the second time too um but uh anyway no i thought it was uh, i was it was altogether remarkable it really was um so anyhow but we'll, i'll talk more about that when, when we schedule that um sorry that was a bonus <laughs> announcement because i don't have an exact time yet but as i said keep an eye out for that uh and it will it will happen soon and the final reminder of course is myth moot um uh coming up um uh, next month, right? We're getting closer to that. Uh, Mythmoot, June 27th through 30th. Registration uh, ends, I am told, on June 6th. So we're starting to get quite close to that. Um, so I hope that if you uh, uh, plan to join us for even a day or whatever, that you can uh, uh, you can go and sign up for that. Also, don't forget Mootcast, our, our online virtual attendance uh, option at MythMood is also uh, open for registration. That will remain open all the way through, in fact, all the way through the last day of MythMood. So you can you can even come in late and still get the, re- the archived recordings of the entire conference. So, uh, but want to encourage you, of course, to sign up as soon as you can for that as well, just to make sure you get in and everything is set. Now, our fun special announcement uh, today uh, is we have... Um, uh, it's a, here she is. Yes. Uh, uh, oh, there she's running back and forth. There she is. Um, uh, Maven here, uh, known to many of you. Uh, Maven is doing a, uh, uh, her thesis theater. So Maven has been completing her master's degree at Signum University uh, uh, for a few years now. Uh, and she is coming to the end of her process. So she's going to present uh, on her um, uh, on her thesis this coming weekend. It's going to happen on Sunday. May 19th at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, so that's something that's going to be accessible to, uh, you know, it's going to be <laughs> Europe friendly and everything. Right. And you can see how uh, obviously how seriously Maven <laughs> Maven's <laughs> little hobbit here on I'll screen you, takes all This that. last one, that's a bit. This is how I feel after how many years of working on this thing. Exactly. Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, Trisha, want to tell us a little bit about like what you're going to be talking about, about sure. what your project well, was. And... You're, you're probably going to have to cut me off. So, you know, <laughs> but um, I explained to somebody today that, you know, there's really kind of two sides of Signum. There's the academic side and there's what I call sort of the pop culture side, if you mm-hmm. want to call it that. Mm-hmm. And this is I kind of I think I've brought the two together. <laughs> right, right. Willy nilly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I actually did my thesis. First of all, just. I'll say I'll talk about this more on Sunday, but I have found in the course of my time at Signum that what really interests me is how classic works of fantasy, specifically Tolkien, but others as well, are being used, are being engaged with right. today. You know, not so right. much the history of it, but how it's happening today. And um, so I'm really interested in that. And of course, there's all kinds of ways. You know, the movies and and all and Lotro. Right. So. I was really taken when I went through Dunlin and Rohan with how well Standing Stones had really developed that area. And really, you, you, you only – I didn't really realize this until I did the thesis, but you only see Saruman a very limited number of times. Yes. But the whole time you're there, there's like this presence, right? Right, right. So I thought, well, gosh, you know, this is literary. 
this is literary. Lotro is literary. And whether they meant to or not, the devs have used these really strong literary archetypes in the stories, not just in Dunlin and Rohan, but let's face it, folks. I mean, I could only write so much, right? <laughs> right so, <exactly. laughs> so I chose exactly. Rohan and Dunlin. And, uh, and it's really, really interesting. So I'll be talking a lot more about that. But my, my thesis of my thesis is that Lotro is a piece of literature. And I think, I think we're going to see that more and more, you know, that, that really well thought through games yes. just like with graphic novels just like with movies you know it's it's going to become literature it's literature mm -hmm. so anyway so we're going to talk about that and um and and some of the stuff that i got to and, and and dante will make an appearance nice so i tip my hat to the medievalists dante <laughs> is there so anyway so i hope you guys can come if not we'll have it up on youtube at some point i'm sure but Definitely. um if you can come on sunday you can actually live ask questions and um you know, engage and all that stuff. And, and I'm going to be talking with my thesis advisor. So you'll get a little bit of the academia that's right. side of that's right. Anyway, that's it. Thank Very you guys. Good. I hope I see you there. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, Tawith was asking where they can hear it, which is an excellent question. So it's, we're going to be broadcasting that as we do most of our broadcasts at Signum uh, over uh, our uh, NetMoot interface, go to webinar uh, uh, as we call it the NetMoot uh, that was decided, I think, in the very first class session when I, we decided that webinar yeah. was a terrible word and we really yeah. shouldn't be using that. So we were trying to think of another word that we could use. And Andy Higgins suggested netmoot uh, as uh, a, a much more friendly word uh, for webinar. Um, anyway, so so yeah, so you what you can do, go to signumuniversity.org. Uh, uh, scroll down just a little bit and you'll see uh, the uh, uh, this the thesis theater for this coming Sunday on the kind of events panel there just click on that there will be a free registration link so that you can uh get and you'll get an email reminder and then you can uh log in and join us 2 p.m on sunday so, so okay one last one yeah. just one last one i know watch out you're gonna, you're, don't slip in the beer okay <laughs> exactly right yeah we should put up a little you know wet floor sign up here now <laughs> okay guys i'll see you sunday awesome. or some other time thank Thanks. you all right, there we go. And Druid's Fire just posted the uh, direct link there to the web page, uh, to the event page for that. So that's great. All right. Um, so those are fun and exciting announcements. What's going on right now at Signum University and general Signum and Mythgard world. Uh, and now on to our discussion. So as I was saying, awesome posts. There are two posts I would want to uh, sort of p direct you to. You know, so you may be asking, where can I find these posts for myself? Forums.signumuniversity.org uh, and then go to the Exploring the Lord of the Rings one. The, the, uh, there are kind of two different forums there. One which is sort of intended for general discussion back and forth. The other is called Questions for Narnian and that's the one where people that's the one that I'm always drawing from where I'm getting my notes and queries at the beginning of class. Um, and we ask to, to not have really long discussion threads because I can't keep up with them all. Um, and uh, it's designed for me to be able to kind of interface for class and stuff. But there are some really fantastic posts there. The two I would particularly draw your attention to uh, today are uh, one by Evil Dr. Cannon made a wonderful uh, 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 lengthy argument 
uh, about the the nature of the power of the rings. His basic argument is that, um, is, or sort of the, the theory that he was working through, uh, following up what we were discussing last time, uh, was that all of the rings of power really seem to have one thing in common, which is dominion, the assertion of dominion over the outside world and or over people. And he was looking at, remember when we were talking about the distinction between the magic that the good guys do and the magic that the bad guys do? And he does a really thoughtful um, analysis discussing basically, essentially theorizing that the central difference between good guy magic and bad guy magic, as far as the rings of power is uh, is concerned, um, is that... The evil people try to dominate the wills of others and sort of suppress the agency of other people um, in order to enslave them to their to the to the you know the agency of the dominator. Whereas the good guys are still asserting dominion, dominion over the world, right? Um, but not dominion over other wills, uh, and therefore not depriving anybody else uh, of their agency. Um, I thought it was a I thought it was a great argument. It makes a great deal of sense. I thought it really pulled together a bunch of the things that we were talking about in ways that that really clarified the issue greatly. The other one, and I'm um, I'm I I I am so grateful. John O'Connor did some graphs of the flight to the Ford uh, in response for my desire to my desire to see um, um, more things let me see if i can see them here so where do we go aha yeah check this out huh would you just check this out this is a graph plotting so the the x-axis is time and the y-axis is units of distance away from frodo right so uh the top here is the witch king it doesn't get any closer to frodo uh and the the bottom it shows the two different pairs of riders who are coming towards him it's fantastic. I, I, I absolutely love it. He does a, a, a map view as well uh, to show uh, the, the trajectory. This is Frodo's path, and these would be the paths of the two pairs of riders. Fantastic. Loved this. Um, I, I'd like to I'd, I'd like to see this developed a little bit further. John, my challenge would be, could we could we try to, uh, you know, I, I totally understand the desire to simplify the math. The the, the one of the fundamental assumptions which he admitted that made this inaccurate that he was um, working under uh, was that the horses were all going the same speed, which of course isn't true, right? Asphaloth is faster. So we'd have to estimate how much faster Asphaloth was, but I think that that could be done. I think that we could work that out and get an even clearer sense of, um, um, of how this uh, would work. But anyway, I, I, liked, I, 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 John absolutely made my day. Thank you so much for doing this. And I thought, by the way, not only uh, your graphing, but your analysis too made a lot of sense. We're going to talk about this more. Uh, I hope to, um, uh, I still hope to reenact this. It's, it's going to be challenging, but I still hope to reenact this in some sense um, in, uh, at, uh, at, at Mythmoot. That's going to be our reenactment challenge. Um, anyhow, uh, <laughs> Mad Violinist says we have to add horses with differential flat out galloping speed to the reenactment budget. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, that's just what we have to do. Anyhow. Okay. Um, so I, as I said, wanted to, uh, wanted to, to, to direct your attention to those two posts. One other that I, uh, and I wish I could talk about more of them, uh, but I can't. Um, so one other just, uh, touching on, 
uh, something quite recently, uh, a wonderful, thoughtful post from Doc Staples um, on uh, the comment that Gandalf made a few classes ago. The race of the kings from over the sea is nearly at an end. It may be that this War of the Ring will be their last adventure. And it goes on to say the discussion focuses, that is our discussion in class, uh, focuses on the fact that it's the same word that refers to Bilbo's activities in The Hobbit, you know, adventure, of course, and that it was first Gandalf's word. And I propose that perhaps it refers to their last uncertain undertaking. Um, and uh, I said that the term adventure conveys two things, that there's a purpose in these activities. It's not just errantry, but a quest and the uncertainty of it. Otherwise, it would just be a venture. Now, he adds, while I don't disagree with those connotations, I was surprised that the discussion never turned to the fact that the Latin adventus or adventus, nominal form of adwenio, means arrival or coming, and frequently carries the connotation of invasion or incursion in a military context. For example, the famous saying of Julius Caesar, "Weni Weedy Weeki, I came or arrived, I saw, I conquered. The prefix is lacking, but the verb stem is the same. I find it extremely difficult that Tolkien would not have been nodding to this sense of advent when having Gandalf use the term adventure here. Especially since, as a Roman Catholic, Tolkien was regularly bathed in that meaning of Advent, not only in the season preceding Christmas in the church calendar, but also in the Paternoster, the Lord's Prayer, which he almost certainly prayed in Latin daily and includes the line, Adveniat regnum tuum, your, king tuum, your kingdom come. In this context, the last adventure of the race of the kings not only connotes a purposeful quest with potentially uncertain results, but ultimately the final coming or incursion of the kingdom of the race of kings. The term thus contains a deliciously ironic double meaning that hints at the purpose of that purposeful quest. Love this. I've almost nothing to add because I think this is this is fantastic. Absolutely. I, that seems to me. Now, it's interesting. Here's the thing that interests me most about this. And uh, Doc, I don't know if this is a, an excuse for my not uh, thinking of that before. Of course, I never think of everything. But um, but when I think of the word adventure, I tend to think of it not I, I t tend to think not of its Latin roots, but of its French roots. Right. Um, adventure is kind of a French word uh, from the from from the uh, I mean, think of Sir Thomas Mallory. I mean, I certainly think of Sir Thomas Mallory as we've been studying for the last 36 Mythgard Academy sessions. And um, uh, he, he, adventure is a very, very favorite word of his. Right. As he's talking about uh, the Arthurian Knights. Um, and anyway, so I uh, uh, I I tend to think of its roots in that sense rather than going back to the Latin, but you're absolutely right. And I, I do think that that's a lovely double sense. You know, is that certainly what Gandalf was implying? I don't know, but I certainly agree. There's no way Tolkien would have been deaf to that. Right. And I think, uh, the play in this context, especially right. That, um, adventure, this is like Bilbo's word, you know, the, uh, the word associated with Bilbo's journey, as we discussed, but it does in the context of saying that it's the adventure, the last advent, ad last adventure um, of the uh, the race of the kings from over the sea uh, does. It, it makes it almost a pun, basically. Right. But I think a, a, a sort of linguistic or even etymological pun, uh, which I it is. I agree with you, Doc, hard to imagine that Tolkien would have been deaf to that. Right. Um, absolutely. Um, uh, 
Lalith says at the least it implies a more positive connotation rather than a negative ending to something. Yes. Um, uh, Lalith meaning instead of saying like it will be their last adventure in the sense of like, you know, not knowing what's going to, I mean, not only saying not knowing what's going to happen, but yes, Advent, especially in the Catholic context, right? Advent, the most common application of Advent uh, is uh, the the Advent of Christ, like the season in the liturgical calendar, right? Advent, the, the weeks leading up to Christmas, um, which about the Advent, about the coming of, of Jesus, about the incarnation. Um, but of course, as he says also in the Lord's Prayer as well, uh, uh, your kingdom come. Anyway, it's all um, it's all it's all very good. Tony, yeah, you know, uh, uh, Tony says someone needs to be com- uh, compiling all of our great posts and insights for some future volumes of our study of the Lord of the Rings. You know, I was thinking the same thing, Tony. Here's here's what I'm kind of imagining, right? I'm imagining someday, and who knows when that day might come, a publication, right, a sort of compendium of exploring the Lord of the Rings where we kind of put together, you know, the stuff that we work out here in class. And I I was kind of imagining uh, sidebars, right? Sidebars with, uh, you know, like some of the great posts that have been posted on the discussion board, Um, uh, you know, along the way. I think that would be fantastic, actually. Um, And uh, uh, I think it would be really cool. And especially given the pace that we're going at, you know, I'm thinking we could even do something like basically publishing a volume per volume, right? So we could we could we could actually start working on editing the volume one, right? Uh, thing. I say we <laughs> because I don't have time to do this, but I think it could be done. Um, but um, anyway, <laughs> it's I, I I think that would be really uh, really cool. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the light says that the the first few chapters would be really short and then the chapters would get longer as the book goes on. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. We could Tawith perhaps to a volume per chapter. Depends on how long the volumes are, right? Um yeah, and I have no idea like exactly where or how this would be published, but um anyway, we'll see. We'll see about that. Um I think that that's um going to be really fun. <laughs> it's going to be really fun one way or the other, however we do it. Um, yeah, no, exactly. Sharon Signum university press is something we've talked about that. That's a phrase that's come up a lot of times. Right. And I, I, you know, it's out there. It's definitely out there. Um, JJ, I was thinking definitely ebook is certainly what I'm thinking. I, I, I'm not really thinking of a print volume there at all. I don't really know exactly how we'd go about it. My biggest que- my biggest concern, honestly, would be text text rights, basically, because it'd be hard to not quote, and we'd be quoting a whole lot of the book, right? Um, even if we wouldn't have to quote quote the entire book as we're doing over the course of the class. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I mean that's kind of that's kind of what I'm thinking, but. Um, um, yeah, so I'm open to suggest if anybody has, sugge- if anyone wants to pitch a practical approach to this project, um, ooh, that was a nicely alliterative, uh, 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 phrase right there. Um, anyway, I would, uh, I would definitely be, uh, be interested, uh, to, to, to hear that. Um, but, um, anyhow, okay. 
let us move on and uh, discuss the text. So, oop, yeah, yeah, okay. All right. We are almost to the end of Gandalf and Frodo's conversation. <clears throat> and is that the end of the Black Riders? asked Frodo. No, said Gandalf. Their horses must have perished, and without them they are crippled. But the ringwraiths themselves cannot be so easily destroyed. However, there is nothing more to fear from them at present. Your friends crossed after the flood had passed, and they found you lying on your face at the top of the bank, with a broken sword under you. The horse was standing guard beside you. You were pale and cold, and they feared you were dead, or worse. Elrond's folk met them, carrying you slowly towards Rivendell. Who made the flood? asked Frodo. Elrond commanded it, answered Gandalf. The river of this valley is under his power, and it will rise in anger when he has great need to bar the ford. As soon as the captain of the ringwraiths rode into the water, the flood was released. If I may say so, I added a few touches of my own. You may not have noticed, but some of the waves took the form of great white horses with shining white riders, and there were many rolling and grinding boulders. For a moment I was afraid that we had let, too f let loose too fierce a wrath, and the flood would get out of hand and wash you all away. There is great vigor in the waters that come down from the snows of the Misty Mountains. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Kurita says the horses again are clearly the hero of the story. Um, yes, yes. Um, Lalith, I agree with you. The dead or worse comment <clears throat> is um, a really important one. Um you were pale and cold, and they feared that you were dead or worse. Um, yeah. Lalith says, uh, that's a great reminder of what we were discussing with the unnaturalness of wraithification as you enter the afterlife. Yes. Here's the other thing that it makes me think. We were talking as if the process that Frodo was undergoing under the influence of the Morgul wound was clearly in some sense parallel to what happens when he wears the ring, right? But it's obviously not exactly the same. When Bilbo is... Bilbo, well, Bilbo too. When Frodo has the ring on, he is in the wraith. That's why they can't see him, right? His body is still there. You can physically interact with his body, but clearly even his body itself, even his physical being, is in some way interacting with the wraith world there, right? Um, exactly how that works in, you know, how his body is in both places at once, essentially. Right. Um, again, and, and, you know, we talked about this in this kind of unnatural, I'm tempted to say blasphemous, but that's not quite the right word. Um, parody of, or, um, uh, you know, sort of, uh, imitation of the uh, uh, the the way in which the Calaquendi exist equally in both worlds. Um, but anyway, the, the wound, right? The wound was in one sense bringing him into the Wraith world. We saw that with the like Paul of Grey coming before his eyes and the distance from his friends and his ability to see the Wraiths with his uh, regular eyes, right? Without wearing the ring. However, um, he he wasn't, his body wasn't fading, Right. Like the, he wasn't invisible. Uh, it, so it wasn't exactly, I think, wraithification in the sense that the ring brings it that he was headed towards. Right. Um, 
Yeah, so I'm thinking that uh, you were pale and cold and they feared that you were dead or worse. So apparently the worse must be Frodo has succumbed to the wound, right? So he is now, Frodo is gone, right? Uh, and he his will is completely enslaved to the enemy. I think that's what or worse has to mean in that context, right? And so if that has happened, th- but he basically from a distance or even up pretty close, right? Um, that and being dead look kind of similar, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, I, I, I definitely, um, that seems to me instructive that it seems that had the, um, had the, had the, had the wound, had the Morgul wound worked its full, um, worked its full effect on Frodo, it would not have turned him into a wraith in a physical sense. Right. I think that's that's the conclusion. Well, I must at least, I feel, draw the conclusion that that's what Gandalf believes, or at least that he's reporting that that's what uh, Strider and the others thought. Right. Uh, and maybe even Gorfindel. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, OK. Um, uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um if Frodo succumbed, would Sauron then know whatever Frodo knows? No, I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is I think we've got reason to believe that Sauron cannot communicate telepathically with the ringwraiths over long distances, right? Um, when the ringwraiths learn something, Sauron doesn't automatically know it, right? They have to go back physically to Mordor to report to Sauron what has happened up here in the north, apparently. Uh, and so, therefore, if the ringwraiths can't communicate with Sauron mind to mind over the over the leagues, I don't think that Frodo would be able to as well. Um, he would be lost, right? Like, there would be no recovering Frodo, right? Um, but... Um, that's again, that's what I think or worse means, uh, in that, uh, um, in that context. But, um, but yeah, I, I don't think that it's, um, it's about physically fading. Again, this might be kind of obvious, but I think that this passage makes that sort of interesting, clear. Um, uh, yeah, see, for Thoughtless, that's what I was thinking about before uh, is Gandalf's earlier quote, if they had succeeded, you would have become like they are only weaker and under their command. Um, that does sound like Frodo would become a wraith. Um, and yet when they see him, his apparent corpse lying there on the ground, they're afraid that he's dead or worse. Right. Um, so, Oh shoot! You are right. Hang on, I'll come back to the horses. Sorry, I, you're right. I did. I forgot about that. That I meant to come back to the horses. Um. Yeah. So you would have become like they are, only weaker and under their command. That's what Gandalf says. If they had succeeded, you would have become like they are. But what does that mean? Like they are? Does that mean necessarily in a physical sense? 
that's how I had always taken it, um, which is what I find striking about this sentence. They feared that you were dead or worse. I'm trying to figure out what the or worse is. The only thing I can think of is that it's under the power of the wound, right? Uh, irredeemably, um, uh, irreversibly morgolified, right? If not wraithified. Um, but apparently that's not... Um, It's at least to Gandalf, or again, at least to Gorfindel and Strider and the and and, and the others, right? Um, that would seem to be consistent with still being able to have his corpse lying perfectly visible uh, there, right? Um, it is possible for Thoughtless that Aragorn and Gorfindel were misinformed about the process. Um, it's possible. Yes, I agree, Brandon, also, that uh, they, the friends, would not really have known about the worst. They, they, Gandalf could merely be expressing here that they feared that something horrible has happened, not knowing that so long as you can see a corpse, it's not so bad, right? I, you know, the worst that could happen is that he's dead. Um, it's possible. I, I think that that's sort of conceivable. But... Um, yeah, I, that could work. Um, that could work, but I'm not really, not 100% sure. Um, yeah. Um, I think we could go either way with that. Let me try to, let me try to come to a, let me try to take a stand on this one. Hey, I just thought of a third possibility. Just thought of a third possibility. What if... What if they were worried... Okay, JJ, that's a fourth possibility. Okay, JJ, do yours first. Possibility number one. He's dead. Possibility number two. He's completely succumbed to the Morgul wound and this is what it looks like, right? Possibility three, as JJ suggests, he's crossed the point of no return, but he's still in the wraithification process, right? So he's still physical, right? But he's gone and he's not coming back and it's only gonna, you know, so it still has, has some opportunity to run its course. Here's the other option, JJ, that I was just thinking of. Dead means when the spirit and the body are no longer talking to each other anymore, right? Death means separation of the spirit and the body. That's pretty clear uh, in Middle-earth lore in general, right? Um, I, that's what happens to elves, right? It's when you've got their spirit and you've got their bodies, right? Their their Fea and their Hroa. And when those things are separated and the Fea goes to Mandos and the Hroa decomposes, uh, then that's death, right? Um, they're the, the, what separates the death of a mortal from the death, you know, the death of a human from the death of an elf is that when the body and is what happens when the spirit and the body separate, right? When elf spirits separate from their bodies, their spirit stays within Arda and hangs out at Mandos and can return and get a new body, right, later on, whereas human spirits depart and go the elves know not whither. Um, but uh, the dying process is the same in both, the separation of body and spirit. So what if, 
the horrible suspicion, fear that they have when they come up and see him lying apparently dead? What if he hasn't actually died, right? He looks dead, but what if it's worse than dead? What if his spirit has left his body, but instead of going to the place where the elves know not whither, it's now a wraith, right? It's now, you know, going to serve Sauron or report back to Sauron or been enslaved and hauled off by the Black Riders, right? That seems also... Again, I'm not saying... I am not saying that I think that that's how the process actually would work. What I'm trying to do is put myself into the position of Merry or Pippin or Sam or even Aragorn or Gorfindel coming up on the apparently lifeless corpse of Frodo and thinking, what do they worry about, right? What is their fear as they're looking at Frodo's body? What are, what are they afraid of, right? And clearly, he's died is not the only thing uh, that they would be afraid of, right? Um, because they know what's been happening with him, at least vaguely, right? The hobbits, certainly vaguely. Um, Gorfindel, you know, Aragorn a little bit more clearly, Gorfindel more clearly yet, um, but something has happened is, is having the, the, he is being he is under the power of the enemy that is has been perfectly clear to everyone right Sam worked that out on his own days ago um, so so yeah yeah um, yeah um, yeah Matt says Gorfindel especially might be uh, worried about the yeah reincorporation or reincarnation or whatever yeah exactly Glorfindel's done it before um, especially if see, I don't know I'm kind of I'm kind of liking this idea um, because it is kind of parallel right if we think about thinking about it in the terms that we were of how I. Uh, Frodo's being in the Wraith world and, and in our world simultaneously, right, was kind of like this sort of, um, you know, unclean, unwholesome, certainly to Frodo, version of what happens with the elves, right? Certainly the elves that were in the prom, the, in the, the, I almost said the promised land, in the, in the blessed realm, right? Um, in, in thinking about that parallel, right, that idea, Frodo's spirit leaves his body but doesn't do the normal, wholesome, mortal thing of leaving, right? And instead does, again, a parallel, like an own wholesome parallel to what happens to, to the elves, right? Like the elves, he remains in Middle-earth um, in this kind of limbo purgatorial state, but not purgatory. Nothing wholesome, nothing healing uh, about this, right? Instead, doomed to perpetual torment, Um yeah, yeah. Yeah, Brandon, it does sound a little bit like that. Brandon suggests, um, you know, a, a, perhaps a version of what that might look like would be cold be hand and heart and bone and cold be sleep under stone, never more to wake on stony bed, never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. In the black wind the stars shall die and still on gold here let them lie till the dark lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. Yes, Right, the confinement of their souls here in this world, in this kind of never-ending uh, 
tormenting limbo in which the you know those other spirits seem to be living right i can uh, i totally believe that right that that sounds like it might work uh uh for me um I seem to be dancing around the word hell. No, no I'm not dancing around it. I'm say- the reason I'm saying purgatory or limbo, mad violinist, is I'm thinking of the parallel that I'm making to Mandos, right? Mandos being not hell, but this in-between place, right? In-between living in the world normally and coming back to the for elves, right? Um, and having this kind of purgatorial role uh, in, the li- in the life cycle of elves, right? Who are... Who- perish in this way who are killed um so that that's why it's it's not that i'm it's not that i'm afraid to talk about hell in this regard but of course that's in in essence right it would be more like hell obviously uh than like purgatory um but um anyway yeah um no i agree that he could certainly be enslaved. The whole point of no return thing seems to me very, very plausible, right? I absolutely could believe um, that he uh, has merely passed the point of no return. Um, But I don't know. Um, But he seems to be dead, right? I don't know. Um, yeah. I could see any of those things in the list of, like, panicked thoughts that are going through their heads as they come across Frodo, which is what Gandalf is gesturing at here, right? Um, they haven't... They, you know... Mary Pippin, Sam, Aragorn, and Gorfindel didn't sit down and have his symposium about what might or might not have happened to Frodo here, right? Gandalf is is trying to convey to Frodo the horrified fears of his friends when they came upon his body, right? Um, so, um, one thought would be, he looks dead. So, again... It, what are the possibilities, right? Given how little data they have, especially the hobbits. He appears to be dead, but he's not dead and like can still be healed, right? He appears to be dead, but he's not dead, but he can't be healed. He is dead (laughs) or, uh, you know, he is dead in the normal sense, right? His soul has left the earth or he's dead in the even worse sense in which his soul has left his body, but is now wandering somewhere enslaved um, on the earth. Those would kind of be the four options. Three of those options are horrible, right? Only one is good. And certainly they would, uh, they would sort of fear that. Um, anyway, um, I see the parallel, Tony, that you're making with Gollum. Um, you know, I, I agree. He doesn't need to be fully invisible to be, have become a complete slave. I agree. And I would even go back to that line that Fourth Dauntless was quoting um, about uh, Fourth Dauntless. I'm just finding it again. If they had succeeded, you have become like they are only weaker. Like they are does not necessarily have to refer to their physical being. Right. Um like they are could mean invisible like they are wraiths as they are wraiths 
but it doesn't necessarily mean that, right? It wouldn't have to mean that. Um, it could be like them in other ways, like enslaved to the will of Sauron. Um, it's one that comes to mind, right? As a way in which he could be like them, but weaker and under their power. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> Belongsmond asks, do I think that Elrond told Gorfindel that the ring is priority over Frodo as a last resort? No. No, I don't. Um, and the reason I don't is that I suspect that Elrond is wise enough to know that that is the path of destruction, right? Anybody who says to himself, you know, I'd love to save Frodo, but if I have to choose one, I'm taking the ring to preserve it instead of saving Frodo's life. I'm going to let Frodo die so that I can take the ring. I'm not saying that's not a thought that would probably occur to Gorfindel, right? That sounds exactly like the kind of thought that the ring might plant in his mind, right? Um, that sounds kind of ring-induced monologue-ish, in fact, right? But yeah, I think if you're making decisions on that... Uh, I would hope that Elrond would know well enough to know that anyone who took the ring on that premise, right, um, would uh, be setting themselves up for extreme risk, <laughs> right, when they took the ring. Um, okay, now, hang on a second. Tony, you're right. Let's, talk, let's go back and talk about the Mad Horses, because I forgot that. Let me see. Where? Whoop, uh, hang on. Okay, sorry. This is the last slide from last time. And, uh, okay. Um, yes, right. Last couple sentences we didn't finish there. Caught between fire and water and seeing an elf lord revealed in his wrath, they were dismayed, that is the ring wraiths, of course, and their horses were stricken with madness. Three were carried away by the first assault of the flood. The others were now hurled into the water by their horses and overwhelmed. Um... Yes. And Mad Violinist, you're totally right that that puts Sam's dilemma in the uh, in in Mordor, right? And at the stairs of Kirathungul um, in a different light. Absolutely. Um, yes. Yes. Um, and also, Mad Violinist, I wonder if it might possibly inform. Uh, I've often felt that Sam is way too hard on himself when he is rebuking himself. Right. Um, for his decision um, and his choice to leave Frodo behind. Um, I wonder, maybe uh, I've never given him enough credit for insight there uh, when he's scolding himself. Uh, but anyway, as you say, we'll get back to that in a few years. Um, okay. So, Brandon, I see that question. Remind me to come back to that. We, we got to get back to the... <laughs> We got to get back to our first slide. We're now back to slide negative one here. Um, okay, horses. Um, all right. Why are the horses stricken with madness? I have to think this is an unhappy thought. 
because these are like the only horses that are harmed in this whole book, right? Uh, I mean, horses do panic when something sudden happens. Um, <clears throat> the question is, if we only had that last sentence, three were carried away by the first assault of the flood, the others were now hurled into the water by their horses and overwhelmed. They panicked, right? The horses panicked um, when the flood came. Right. And 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 we're swept away. That doesn't seem to me unlikely at all. But I feel like the sentence before that seems to suggest quite clearly that the source of the madness and panic of the horses is not the flood, but Glorfindel. Caught between fire and water and seeing an elf lord revealed in his wrath, they were dismayed and their horses were stricken with madness. Now, again, the whole situation is going to madden the horses, right? Poor horses. There's a flood in front of them. There's fire coming up behind them. Um, they're experiencing complete sensory overload. But seeing an elf lord revealed in his wrath is included. Does he affect the horses? Does Gorfindel affect the horses? Um, I'm not sure that that's literally what that sentence says. Um Caught between fire and water and seeing an elf lord revealed in his wrath, they were dismayed, right? So they, the ringwraiths, were dismayed when they were caught between fire and water and seeing an elf lord revealed in his wrath, right? So it's the wraiths, they, right, who are seeing the elf lord, elf lord revealed in his wrath. The horses would presumably not see the elf lord revealed in his wrath. They would not be seeing the glowing white light, uh, you know, the burning white light that was Gorfindel that Frodo saw across the ford. Um, so I, 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 that would argue against Glorfindel spooking their horses, right? Um, deliberately in order to get the rest of the horses to convey their riders into the flood. Um, and their horses were stricken with madness is a separate independent clause, right? But of course, by joining them together, that is joining the first part of the sentence and the second part of the sentence, that is the both of those two independent clauses uh, in one compound sentence, Gandalf appears to be implying that the horses are stricken with madness for a similar reason to how the wraiths to why the wraiths were dismayed, right? Um, and but Valori, you are exactly articulating sort of the discomfort, right? Um, that is, Glorfindel is a devoted horseman. Any horseman worth his salt loves horses a hundred times more than people. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard for me. To, <laughs> This is this is difficult, right? I want to say, I can't imagine that Glorfindel would say, I'm going to deliberately kill all these horses for the sake of bring, taking the Black Riders down with him, right? Um, I'd like to think that that wouldn't be Glorfindel's plan, but it seems to be his plan. Or at least, if they don't. Right. If the Black Riders horses do not bolt into the ford, then the flood isn't going to work. Um, you know, so I don't know. Um, syntactically, I can see an argument that 
the elf lord in his wrath has nothing to do with the madness of the horses. Um, caught between fire and water could certainly be enough to explain it, especially when, as a couple of you have uh, um, have have suggested the dismay of their riders itself is another factor, right? Um, the horses would presumably be to some sense in tune with their riders. Um, and the fact that their riders were completely wigging out is going to communicate itself to, to the horses in addition to the complete sensory overload of the flood and the fire. Um, I can, I can definitely see that. Um, but Mad violinist, I also can't rid myself of the possibility, right? Or of the question, at least. Um, yes, elves do appear to have a power of command over animals. Does Glorfindel deliberately strike the horses with madness so that they ride into the... Because the overall plan... Remember, Glorfindel knows about the flood. So... This is like Operation Sweep the Ringwraiths Away in the Flood. That's the plan, right? That's Elrond and Gandalf's plan. Glorfindel knows that that's the plan, right? So in order for the plan, the flood plan to work, the riders have to be in the ford. They have to be in the water, right? And that means it's going to kill the horses. I mean, there's no saving the horses in that. Um, it almost feels like we're being too oversensitive here, you know, like, okay. So like at the cost of the death of nine horses, uh, you know, the black riders are taken down and the ring bearer is made secure, at least for the present. That seems like a smallish price to pay, but I don't want to be too quick to dismiss that. Right. Um, I didn't, uh, I, 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 it still seems to me an important uh, question. And Sharon, I was thinking the same thing about, you know, experience of cavalry in battle, right? Um, at battle experience does suggest that horses, while cherished, are dispensable, um, particularly horses bred for rates. Certainly Sauron would find them expendable. Um, but again, one wants to one wants to think that, you know, the elves are different. Like it's it's I can't be the only one who finds the idea that Glorfindel would deliberately madden the horses in order for them to kill themselves and take the riders down with them. Uh, repugnant, right? I find that a repugnant idea. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Trifle says that he could see that level of pragmatism from Glorfindel. Um, probably something to do with the fact he was willing to do the same thing with his own life. Possibly possibly um yeah yeah um Katriana says maybe you would consider it a mercy killing of the horses setting them free from their uh servitude it's true that the horses are enslaved as well um yeah that's true um uh thinking about uh Carita what you were saying before you know that when a when a when a horse is is um, suffering, you know, uh, irremediably, you kill it, right? Um, uh, is that is there a sense in which that um, applied here as well? Um, possibly, 
possible. Yeah, Tony is suggesting that too, as sort of a form of euthanasia. Um, it does depend, Johannes, on exactly that question. Uh, have the horses been corrupted enough to be considered evil themselves? Would it be a mercy just to kill them here? Um, have they been corrupted or have they been deceived? Uh, it's a fascinating argument, right? You could see it either way. You could see the horses of the uh, of the ringwraiths as victims, right? You know, as, uh, uh, you know, creatures who are simply, um, they've been enslaved, uh, they don't know any better, and they would prefer better masters if they could get them, right? But this is all they've known all their lives. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Yeah, see, but the problem is, Penlov, it's not just that they're that they're Nazgul steeds, they're horses from Rohan, as we'll learn later, right? Um, Aemir will tell us that they're always stealing the black horses, right? And, and thus their feud with the orcs is bitter. Um, these are horses that are stolen and that are raised within Mordor for this purpose. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yep. Um, so many comments, so much to think about. Um, yeah. Again, I do agree. You know, Nathan, I, I mean, I think there's much to be said for that. I've even said before things like, I think that a lot of people over, you know, it's easy to sometimes the popular conception of Tolkien's elves and Tolkien's hobbits becomes idealized in directions beyond what the text says of them. Right. For instance, remember we talked about this when we were looking at the uh, antagonism between the old forest and the hobbits, right? We tend to think about hobbits being at peace with all of nature. They're not at peace with all of nature. They're farmers, right? Um, and they have no more truck with encroaching forests than they have with weeds, right? So they're not just benevolent to all living creatures, right? And the same is true of elves. Elves hunt. Elves have always hunted. That's always been true. So, um, I, again, there are a lot of people... I. Her, I hear people talking about Tolkien's elves as if, like, oh, they must be vegetarians. They would never harm a living creature. Except, no, they do harm living creatures, right? They even cut down trees. Um, so we have to be careful there. The text does not, in fact, support um, that kind of view of elves as never harming a living thing. They do harm living things. Um, I'm, again, I'm not trying to simply dismiss um uh i'm i'm not i'm i'm not i'm not trying simply to dismiss that repugnance that i myself feel very strongly about the idea of gorfindel pushing the horses into the flood right um but um 
<laughs> the brutal squashing of grapes into wine. Yeah, well, that one certainly. Um, yeah. Um, as I say, I don't want to dismiss that. But at the end, at the end of the day, I think it's pretty clear that Gorfindel intends them all to go in. It's not an accidental byproduct, right? It is not an accident that the horses end up going into the flood. That's where Gorfindel wanted them. What did he do? To what extent was he complicit with that? You know, was it was he deliberately in maddening the horses so that they would? Um, I'm not really sure. Um but um yeah um yeah um yeah if fourth dauntless says i myself love dogs but if i was in the army and a guard dog attacked me i think i'd be okay killing it um these are war horses not civilians yeah yeah i mean and again, as as several people have been reminding us, I mean, you know, horses in battle are, a, a, you know, that's a fact of life. And that's, you know, something that would have been the idea of killing horses in co in a combat situation uh, would have been much at least less alien, uh, seeming less sort of horrible, uh, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the horses were good until Sauron shod them with shoes forged in the fires of Mount Doom. Yeah, the horses have been to that extent wraithified, right? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, yeah. Um, Bricktails, yes, you're right that Baron living in harmony with animals and never and being becoming a vegetarian for that reason was an exception from the norm, even among the elves. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and of course, as Sharon and Caleridoc are talking about, certainly there were have been many dead horses who were casualties of World War One. Um, yeah, of course, absolutely. Uh, that would have been a thing that he would have, uh, um, he would have seen. And Mike, you're absolutely right that it is very difficult for us in 2019 to view, to recapture the view of horses from the, like a pre-industrialized era. And I would include Tolkien in this, right? When Tolkien was growing up, motor cars were a rarity. He had never seen one, as he says, right? In the pre-motor car era, horses were forms of transportation, right? I mean, it's not to say that their, you know, life as a, an independent life form was not acknowledged, that people didn't care about killing them. But but again, it's, it's different. Uh, the way that horses are kept now... And the kind of relationship that that uh, horse owners have with horses in the modern world is just fundamentally different from the way that horses were viewed and treated in the older days. That's that's like absolutely inescapable. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, I still don't think it's inappropriate to be asked. I still don't think this is us making much out of nothing. Um, 
But I think if I had to come to, again, syntactically, we could see it either way. But I think if I had to come down, I would come down on the side of, yes, Gorfindel deliberately maddening their horses. If we feel like we need a reason to, um, um, if we feel like we need a reason uh, uh, f- to imagine uh Glorfindel being okay with this like if we if we feel like Glorfindel needs a rationale the potential of the corruption of the horses certainly uh seems to me at least possible at least relevant um yeah yeah um and you're several people are pointing out that um at times and at least um and and still in in the modern days in parts of the world, uh, horses are eaten as food, um, and that is a concept that we have a hard time wrapping our brains around uh, as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Trifles asking if if uh, the rates were riding on cows, would we have this problem? <laughs> right. Um, thank you for that image, Trifle. I will cherish the image of the Witch King riding uh, uh, in pursuing Frodo mounted on a cow. Um, I love that idea. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. JJ. No, I too am picturing not a bull, but a dairy cow. Yeah. Like a Holstein. That's, that's the picture I have in my head. Um, <laughs> the, the moose goal. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. The moose goal. Um, yep. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I'm still going. I'm still going. Uh, it's people suggesting other breeds of, of, uh, of, of, of cow. No, I'm still going. I'm still going Holstein. That's, that's what I like thinking. Uh, yes. The cow jumped over the moon takes on new meaning. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. Having this, this is why I didn't talk about this at the end of the last class and save this until now. And thank you guys for reminding me. Now it's okay. There we are. Back to slide one. Now back to the horses again. No, said Gandalf. Their horses must have perished, and without them they are crippled. But the ringwraiths themselves cannot be so easily destroyed. Without them, they are crippled. Now, I know a couple of you were wanting to talk about um, this line. Um, in what sense are the ring rates crippled without their horses? The most obvious sense, of course, is that they now have to travel on foot and are much slower. Remember, Frodo has already asked the question, how is it that they can ride horses at all? Animals hate ring rates. Animals freak out when ring rates come nearby, Right. Dogs bark and the geese scream. Um, and Gandalf's answer was these horses are raised in Mordor, right? They, you know, this is part of the lives of these horses from the beginning, right? Um, so that is to say the riders can't just go and steal horses from the next village over, right? Um, and then they're uncrippled again now, right? It's, they can't do that. They will not be able to ride non-Mordor bred horses, and so, therefore, they have no choice but to schlep their way slowly back on foot or whatever uh, on their incorporeal feet. In their corporeal boots, however, 
they're going to have to wear out the leather uh, of their uh, of their fully corporeal boots. Though I suppose they probably lost their boots uh, in uh, uh, in the the flood as well. That's right. Yeah, that's right. There's no way they're hanging on to their boots, um, and presumably their cloaks. So all of their all of their connections with the physical world, right? The clothing by which they were making them their own persons visible uh, to other people, the horses, which they were not only able to ride, but which also could see the physical world around them more clearly than they could. So they're, they're now kind of stumbling. They can see, but not that clearly. Right. Um, so they're now going to have to walk, bl- not totally blind, but uh, through their own, highly imperfect vision right all the way back to Mordor now that seems um uh that seems to me uh to satisfy the description of crippled right um this also means that they're doing the walk of shame Tarloniel absolutely the long long walk of shame um yes um, <laughs> Mike points out that the nine can simply walk into Mordor, um, and that's simple. That's certainly true. Um, and you're right; it's not a short walk, um, especially if you don't see real well. Um, yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, and Tony asks, "Are there allies anywhere that would speed their trip back to Mordor? Nowhere this side of Isengard, really. That's reliable." Um, and even reliably locatable, especially to visually impaired and largely invisible themselves, Nazgul, with no horses and no boots. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I that seems um, uh, that seems quite right. Yes, exactly, Sam. Now they're the now they're the nine walkers, right? So the nine walkers that are the fellowship are going to be following in the footsteps of the nine incorporeal walkers who have gone before. Um, yeah, and Penlov, I agree. I also don't think that Sauron is going to want them asking Saruman for a cab. Saruman is their only potential ally, but he is a dangerous ally, right? The Nazgul would surely not uh, return to Isengard weakened, right? Um, uh, because who knows how Saruman might try to take advantage of that situation. Um, so, um, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, Matt and Mike are both wondering if uh, they would, how well they'd even be able to communicate uh, with any allies in their weakened state. I don't know for sure, though. I mean, I would think that the, um, uh, <laughs> exactly, Cecilia, they, they would be, uh, they would be like nine beggars with one dog. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yep. Yep. Um, Anyhow, uh, so the communication, they were able to speak, right? They spoke to the gaffer. They spoke to Barlam and Butterbur. They spoke to Farmer Maggot. Um, presumably them having cloaks on didn't help their voices at all, right? It helped, you know, Gaffer Gamgee have something to look at um but it it wouldn't necessarily help them project their voices but um uh so i would think they'd still be able to talk i mean are they weakened to the extent that they can no longer communicate i'm not really 
I'm not really sure about that. Um, Nathan is wondering about the timeline of how long it takes them to walk back to Mordor. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll look into that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they end up walking the whole way. Don't worry. We'll come back to this. Before the end of 2020, we'll come back to this question. Um, let's see. Um, now, Brandon points out that uh, we're assuming that they're walking. We know that's what they do when they talk to hobbits, but it doesn't mean that's their primary mode of non-horse transportation. The question, Brandon, being we're making the assumption that they can't fly. Could they fly if, you know, all else fails? Do Nazgul have wings? <laughs> exactly. I think they can't fly. And the reason I think they can't fly is because they're given mounted steeds elsewhere, right? Um, the question to me is not necessarily... Um, is not necessarily why would you ride a fell beast if you could fly? Because a fell beast might be more intimidating, right? Um, you know, it's more visible. Um, but to me, actually, I would even go the other way. Like, if you can fly, why ride horses in the first place, right? As presumably uh, searching for the ring all over Ariador, like... And, flying right under your own power and then only landing occasionally uh, in order to uh, uh, interrogate hobbits would be more efficient, right? Wouldn't it? That would have to be more efficient. So I'm kind of thinking that if, if they're riding horses in the first place, they can't fly. Um, yeah. So I, that's, that's kind of what I'm, uh, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, Druid's Fire points out if you can fly, they wouldn't have needed to go to the Brandywine Bridge instead of just drifting on over the river. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of places they could have gotten much more quickly if they were able to fly. So, yeah, no, I don't think personal flight is in the capability of the of the wraiths. Um, yeah, yeah, um. Yep. Yep. Um, now you're right. Oh, I say you're right. Who is you? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, Lilith was talking about this. Um, uh, who else was talking about this? Um, yeah, no, Lilith, that was you earlier also. Um, they would be swifters, even if they're walking or incorporeally walking. They don't have to stop for rest stops, right? They're, you know, they're, they, they, even if they're proceeding at a more or less walking pace, that could be sort of more consistent. Um, yes, possibly. Um, see, I am resistant to the... It's possible, right, to draw a parallel. We have two models, the apparent drowning of the ringwraiths, right, brings up two possible models. One is Gandalf, right, you know, falling to his, you know, Gandalf dies and returns, taking on a new body again. 
And in the meantime, his spirit does some stuff. Uh, Sauron falls into the into the abyss with Numenor, right? Um, and then his spirit returns. Um, but the Ringwraiths aren't in either position. They're, they are their whole being is is different from either Sauron or from Gandalf. So I don't know that those parallels really do us much good. I tend to think. I don't think the Ringwraiths died. Um, notice that's what Gandalf emphasizes. We've been talking about them being in a weakened state. Gandalf doesn't acknowledge they're being weakened in any way other than being robbed of their horses. Their horses must have perished. Frodo, remember Frodo's asked, is that the end of them, right? Did the Black Riders perish? Frodo is asking. And Gandalf's response is, no. Their horses must have perished, and without them, they are crippled. So without the horses, the Black Riders are crippled, right? They are weakened to that extent that they can no longer move around as quickly, and they're more cut off from the physical world because we know that they don't see the world as we do, but their horses do, uh, and presumably they've lost their boots and cloaks. Um, but the ring raids themselves cannot be so easily destroyed. Gandalf's emphasis is not, hey, they're, they're weaker now, right? They've been sort of destroyed, but they've returned, but they're weaker. No, that's not what he says, right? What he said, what his message, his answer to, is this the end of the Black Riders? No, they weren't killed, right? So I don't even know that we have evidence that they directly have been affected, that they've been weakened um, exactly as we've, as we've been saying. They've been crippled by the loss of the horses. And I would suggest probably their boots and cloaks. Um, but yeah, no, they would certainly not lose their weapons, Nathan, as their weapons were also incorporeal, right? I bet they still have the kingly raiment that Frodo sees, right, when he sees them. Because it's not physical, right? You can't wash that away in a flood. Um, so yeah, um... Yeah, Cecilia is wondering why the Dark Lord didn't give them flying beasts in the first place, or didn't they have enough levels and experience points? Hmm. Well, I think we'll need to wait on that one a little bit. Um, it's not yet. It is not yet time for the winged Nazgul. It's not, it wasn't their hour, Belongsman. That's the correct answer. Yeah, exactly. Um, they didn't have the DLC yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, they're still saving up for that. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, the time has not yet come. And I think that that's true in more than one sense. I think it's true in the pragmatic sense that many of you are pointing to, right? Uh, namely that Sauron is still trying to keep a low profile on this whole search, right? And the monstrous flying beast that inspires terror, you know, kind of gives away the game a little bit. Um, Sauron is not yet moving to open war, and those are engines for open war, right? So the time has not yet come for that. Um, but I think it's also more than just that. I think it's also has to do with the upgrade uh, that the Ringwraiths, or at least the Witch King, is going to get later on. Um, 
so yeah um i think there's more than one reason uh there's both sort of practical and more sort of spiritual reasons um why that hasn't happened okay a third reason sharon tolkien hadn't thought of them yet uh yeah probably right certainly in the in the first draft we were very far away from fell beasts as yet um so that's a yet a third reason on a different plane um if that makes sense so yeah so erodrush if i'm understanding your question correctly could the ringwraiths not even be killed by being washed away in a magic flood? No, they can't be killed. Again, that's that's what Gandalf is saying. No, definitely not. Um, anyway, okay. Um, Blancsmond is saying he likes the idea now that the nothingness of the Nazgul has physical weight. Yeah. No, it does. Remember... Their bodies interact with the physical world. They can wear real boots, right? They, they they can wear real cloaks that conceal their nothingness because they don't they look like shadows, right? So it looks like, but it isn't nothing, right? You can stab them with a sword. If you do, your sword will break, right? All weapons perish which pierce that deadly king, says Aragorn to Frodo after Weathertop, right? So He's telling Frodo, you can tell, no offense, but you missed, right? Obviously, because your sword hasn't been destroyed, right? Had you not missed, then your sword would have perished. Pierce is the word that he uses, right? And we know from future experience that the Witch King is stabbable. He's not killable uh, until his hour arrives, but he is stabbable even now. Frodo could have stabbed him, um, but uh, he obviously didn't stab him. In other words, again, all I'm getting at, I'm not trying to get to, uh, and I don't want to start talking now about prophecies about the Witch King's death or even about Barrow Blades. Uh, you know, these are Norian, Numenorian blades. What I am saying is they could, they still have bodies. Remember, remember Frodo, right? And this whole concept of the dual uh, presence in the physical world and the Wraith world. I think the Wraiths have that too. They are much more heavily over on the Wraith side, but they're not 0% in our world. Obviously, they couldn't wear boots if they were 0% in our world. Um, just Bruce exactly, just as Bilbo, though he is invisible to the physical world, is still tangible in the physical world. Um, he can uh, uh, he can still, um, you know... Uh, get his buttons popped off his waistcoat when he's invisible. Um, yeah, exactly, Bruce. Yeah, you were thinking of that same scene. Um, so anyway, so it is not therefore shocking. Um, it shouldn't be strange to us to think that the black uh, that the Nazgul um, are, are being like washed away by the flood, right? Tumbled down the riverbed uh, in the torrent of water. Um, so anyway, um, that's, that makes perfect sense. Now, doubly so with this flood, I would say. Um, hmm. Uh, now Trifle wants to know, would a sword like Glamdring also be destroyed, even though it can take a Balrog? All blades perish, says 
um, says Aragorn, and we don't see any exceptions to that. You know, I don't know. We never see him get stabbed uh, by a sword like Lamdring, but, you know, we don't um, we don't have any counterexamples uh, to uh, Aragorn's statement there. So. No idea. <laughs> what about a blade drawn from the scabbard of Lothlorien? Oh, boy, there you have Goadriel's magic and the Witch King's magic uh, right up against each other. That'd be tough. It'd be tough. It's like the irresistible force and the immovable object, right? Um, <laughs> Forthalus is now wondering if a bludgeoning weapon would work better. Yeah, that's the problem. If you use a piercing or slashing weapon, then you're in trouble. But yeah, um, and he himself, that is the Witch King himself, uses a uses a mace, right? So there you go. Oh, dear. Anyway, um, Tony's wanting to talk about all the broken swords in this book. Um, well, Tony, I was thinking, right, of course, Aragorn's primary weapon is preemptively broken, right? So, uh, you know, he's just kind of anticipating the, the inevitable there. Um, yeah, yeah. Arden Cran, I tend to agree with you. I think I agree with you. Well, not 100% sure if I agree with you. I like that reading, but I'm not sure I agree. Um, he says his guess is that the scabbard is prophetic rather than enchanted. Um, I think it may be enchanted, though. Uh, but, um, yeah, anyway, we'll see. Um, yeah. Well, exactly, Trifle. Maybe if you'd stabbed the Nazgul with a sword that's already been pinned, it's already broken, maybe maybe you can get around it. Uh, not really sure. Um, anyhow. Um, <laughs> what about a pointed stick? <laughs> Says Boom for you. Oops, oh dear. We've lost Narnian. Hang on a second. Um, yeah, uh, we uh, no, a pointed stick. I'm not saying that the Nazgul knows how to defend himself against a pointed stick, but he clearly doesn't have to worry about it. Um, okay, <laughs> moving on. Uh, let's see. Okay, we already talked about... Uh, notice that his sword is broken. Um, that's interesting. Uh, Frodo's sword is broken. Of course, remember, it was broken not because he stabbed the Witch King, but because it was broken by the Witch King. Remember, we saw that happen. Uh, uh, Frodo's sword breaks in his hand, right? Um, uh, yeah. Um, and the horse was standing guard beside you, right? I love the idea of the horse standing guard, right? It's not just the horse stuck around. Um it's not right. And Aswath was also there too. No, he is distinctly standing guard. Uh, and that's, uh, that's really kind of lovely. Um, we already talked a great deal about thought you were dead or worse. Elrond's folk met them, carrying you slowly toward, towards Rivendell. So they, Strider, Gorfindel, and the others, um, I'm going to keep calling them that because it's a lot of fun. Um, uh, anyway, I'm just, I'm sort of shamelessly baiting those of you who had a, were having a hard time with uh, uh, Gandalf referring to the three hobbits as the others. Uh, anyway, um, so Elrond's folk met them carrying you slowly towards Rivendell. Um, yeah. It's a wonderful image um, of them kind of 
walk. They're clearly carrying him in their arms, I think. They don't sling him over uh, Asphaloth's back. Um, they're carrying him both more more tenderly um, and also, you know, sort of more gently. Asphaloth is great, but his gait would certainly be a little bit more, you know, Frodo would be kind of bouncing along right on his back. Um, the slowly... Uh, Tony, I agree. You know, Tony says you think they'd be in a hurry, right? Rushing him to the emergency room. Um, but I agree with Fourth Dauntless. It sounds a lot like a funeral procession. You know, Fourth Dauntless is asking why not put him on the horse and gallop with him towards Elrond. Um, this, uh, the, one of two things. Either they think he's dead and they are. it is a funeral procession, right? Um, that You'd think Orfindel would know, right, that he wasn't dead. So that would be uh, um, that would be a little hard. But secondly, um, why aren't they galloping with him? Would he survive that? Would Gorfindel be? I, it doesn't seem to me hard to believe that Gorfindel's like, look, if we jounce along with him on horseback, he's going to die, right? I mean, the. Frodo's proximity to death would, I think, indicate gentle handling here. Um, so, um, yeah, he is mostly dead one way or another, right? He, he's either dead or he's mostly dead. Uh, and I, 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 the sense of um, care here is, is the, the carrying you slowly. Um, yeah, trifles room remembering how the Rohirrim handle Theoden and Eowyn when both were dead or thought dead. There is that, though, I mean, yeah, there they are reverently dealing with the corpses of their dead king, right? There. Um, uh, so that, and, and again, it does look like a funeral procession, Um but yeah, it seems that one way or the other, I, it's, it's just not hard for me to imagine that Gorfindel is saying we have to, you know, we have to take the utmost care here. Um, that that would be even more important than speed. I, if Gorfindel did it, you have to think that that's if if there's a reason, that's got to be the reason, right? Um, that Gorfindel didn't mount up with him right away and carry him in his arms on Asphaloth's back towards Rivendell. Um, yeah. Anyway, I also really like, let's see, who is it? Who was just saying this? Was it Tony? Was that you? Oh no, Brandon, uh, Freemorn, uh, Gandalf's non answering of the question. Who made the flood? Who made the flood? Asked Frodo. Elrond commanded it, answered Gandalf. The river of this valley is under... So that's not exactly... You know, who made the flood? The answer is not Elrond, right? Um, Elrond commanded the flood, right? Um, what What is the reason for that non-answer, right? Why is he not answer? Why does he offer that clarification? Who made the flood? Elrond commanded it. Um there are two ways in which I can understand the distinction that Gandalf appears to be making here. One is that Elrond doesn't make the flood, right? Uh, the river makes the flood, right? 
Um, he doesn't. So one thing that I think that he could be saying is nobody generated the water. <laughs> the river belongs only to itself. Fourth dollars. Exactly. Exactly. Um, he is not master over the river, right? He, he has authority there. He commanded it. Um, but he didn't. So one possibility is that Gandalf is if Frodo is imagining Gandalf or Elrond, either one of them sort of standing there and like lifting their hands and suddenly a flood appears at a, a flood of water appears out of nowhere and comes rushing down as if this were a spell being cast. Um, he's correcting that image by saying that he commanded it. So he spoke words of command, right? He, he ordered the flood to happen, but it's the river itself, which rose up in response to his command. Right. Um, that, uh, that makes sense, I think. Um, so, but there's another way I think to understand it. And that is, it kind of depends on, um, it kind of depends on what Frodo means when he says who made the flood. If the actual question in Frodo's mind is where did the water come from? Right. Then Gandalf is answering that by saying Elrond commanded it. Elrond triggered the flood, but he didn't generate the water, right? The water came from the river, but it was under his command. Um, and he's clarifying in that sense, Valori, yes, he's, he's clarifying kind of how magic works in that sense. Right. Um, but again, I think there's another way in which we can understand it. If Frodo is not asking, hey, where'd all that water come from? But instead is asking whose power was at work in this, you know, miraculous, this you catastrophic event, which did away with the ring rates, right? Um, which carried them. Who's responsible for striking down the ring rates through this flood? Right. Um, if that's what he's asking, then I think the answer he's Gandalf is being indirect with his answer in a different for a different reason. Right. The river of this valley is under his power and it will rise in anger when he has great need to bar the ford. Um, so Elrond has power over the river. Um, but notice again, he speaks of the agency of the river. It will rise in anger. It's not just that he makes the voice of the verb active, like the, the, the river itself will rise, right? It will perform that action in response to Elrond's command. So it's not only that he's emphasizing the agency of the river, he attributes emotion to it. It will rise in anger, right? When Elrond has great need, the river responds. If enemies are trying to cross the boundary into uh, you know, Rivendell domain, right into Elrond's domain. The river is not going to put up with that kind of thing, right? The river will not have it. Um, Elrond's borders are being transgressed and it's going to do something about that. Um, so again, that's, that's clearly one distinction that he's making, but then we get to the second, the guy, as soon as the captain of the ring rates rode into the water, the flood was released passive voice. Now, Right. The flood was released. Uh, and here I think I, that I, I, I hear there in his use of the passive there um, as 
basically that acknowledges the sort of joint agency there, right? The flood was released. The river did it at Elrond's command. So Elrond released the flood. The river released itself, right? Uh, in response to his command, this happened, right? Um, the, the, the flood was the, the collaborative flood, the flood, which was a collaboration between the river and Elrond, uh, was released at this point. But notice it is not only the river with whom, uh, Elrond is collaborating, right? If I may say so, I added a few touches of my own. You may not have noticed, but some of the waves took the form of great white horses with shining white riders, and there were many rolling and grinding boulders. Um, initially, I used to think that Gandalf's contributions to the flood were purely aesthetic, right? Um, that Gandalf was like, and I made it look cool, right? Um, and I know where that reading came from. I, 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 I know exactly where I got that reading. Uh, and that's from my first ever audiobook recording of The Lord of the Rings, the abridged version, the, the mind's eye recording that came in the wooden box, uh, which I know that some of you have heard. Um, in that voice dramatization adaptation of the Lord of the Rings. It's not just an abridgment, right? It's an adaptation because it's a, it's a dramatization, uh, a voice acting dramatization. Um, uh, in that, the guy doing Gandalf adds a line, right? He says, I added a few touches of my own. You may not have noticed but some of the waves took the form of great white horses with shining white riders. And then he says, perhaps too many, right? As if he's inviting criticism or compliment, like, oh no, Gandalf, I thought it was lovely, right? Really, you added just the right number of white horses with shining white riders, right? You totally didn't aesthetically overdo it, Gandalf, right? Um, is how the actor plays that very explicitly, how the actor plays that. Um, and I will add, I don't think they're coming out of nowhere with that, right? Gandalf's comment, you may not have noticed, right? Could be taken in that sense of like an artist who is being modest, right? You might not have noticed the aesthetic touches that I added. I, I, I thought it looked nice, but perhaps you didn't really notice. Um, I don't think that's what Gandalf means, but I can understand where they got that from. Um, so yeah, again, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not endorsing that reading, uh, but I can see where that reading came from. I can see where they got that reading. And I know for a fact that that's what influenced me for many years. Um, but um, yeah, I don't think that that's what he's saying here. I don't think that his touches that he added are purely aesthetic. Um, now, an interesting question uh, you guys were asking, let's see. Fort Dauntless again. Did Gandalf add the boulders too? You, you may not have noticed, but some of the waves took the form of great white horses with shining white riders, and there were many rolling and grinding boulders. 
there were, he doesn't say, and I also, so if, if it were directly parallel, but some of the waves took the form of great white horses with shining white riders, and also some took the form of rolling and grinding boulders. Um, the lack of direct parallelism there does open up the possibility that he's saying, I added the white horses and the white riders. FYI, there were also some perfectly mundane rolling and grinding boulders because, dang, that flood was coming down, right? A great flood might indeed roll grinding boulders down with it, conceivably. Um, but I tend not to think so. Um, I tend to think that he is... Um, um, yeah, exactly, Matt. I agree. I, I think that they are part of the... Um, there's the colon here. I add a few touches of my own colon, right? Um, and the rolling and grinding boulders are part of the rest of that sentence which follows the colon. That's exactly my reasoning, Matt. Um, I think he added both. I think he added both the boulders and the great white horses with shining white riders. I forget who said this earlier on, but I agree with whoever it was. This was some time ago. Um, this is a lovely anticipation of the white rider, right? Gandalf himself is going to return uh, as a shining white rider upon a great... Uh, well, not exact. Shadowfax isn't a white horse, uh, in fact. Um, but he is going to return as a shining white rider, certainly, right? Um, so... That is a really fun anticipation, right? A really fun piece of foreshadowing. Um, if foreshadowing is the correct word to use. And it's not exactly foreshadowing. What would it be? Forelightening, uh, I guess. But um, uh, anyway. Um, yeah. Um, I th think we talked a little bit about the white horses before. Um, the idea that Gandalf would... First of all, let's kind of back up from it a second. Instead of just thinking about what these symbols mean, let's remember first what is the reality beneath these visual appearances, right? Um... This is not just an, an aesthetic addition. He is putting forth his own power in the Flood as well. Um, Elrond has commanded the Flood, but Gandalf also embellishes the Flood with his own power as well. That power which Gandalf adds manifests itself visually as shining as great white horses with shining white riders bearing down upon the black riders, right? Um, one of the things that this clearly proclaims... Yeah, Nathan, that's a really great way of, uh, of describing it. Um, uh, Nathan the Wronged says that Gandalf is making a statement to the Ringwraiths, right? He is now proclaiming uh, that he, he is opposing them directly, right? The White Riders coming up against the Black Riders. Um, yeah, the fact, like, why White Riders... Uh, White horses and white riders. I think the only answer, the only answer that makes any sense to that, um, is because they're the opposite of the black riders, which were in the ford, and that does seem to be the message, right? 
we are opposing you. Your Lord has sent, your dark master has sent black riders on black horses into our lands. We are sending, you're packing you home to your master with shining white riders on great white horses. Um, uh, that seems to be the message, right? Uh, that, that is being conveyed to the ring rates at this point. Um, and, uh, it seems to me to connect fairly clearly with what Gandalf had just been saying to Frodo, right? About anticipating the war of the ring. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Rococo, I don't know. So even assuming, even even acknowledging that it's not that that there is magic here as well, that this is not just an aesthetic addition on Gandalf's part, um, Rococo is asking the excellent question: Is the shape of the horses and riders sort of spontaneous, or or could he have chosen to make it look like anything? And that's the form that he chose. Um, I don't know. I mean, we can't really answer that. Uh, it could be that Gandalf Gandalf just put forth his own power, and that's how the power manifested itself. I tend to think, though, Gandalf does seem to have some control over his... And we, we know visual artistry is a part of what Gandalf does, right? I think of his fireworks, after all, right? Yeah. So I tend to think Gandalf and his fireworks leads me to suspect that um, his power exerted over the flood um, is manifested in a visual form which Gandalf chooses, right? He has crafted the form just as he has crafted his fireworks and Sam, you are right, his uh, weird smoke rings as well. Yes. Um, so, and as for the rolling and grinding boulders, so if the message that is, be, so if, if we imagine these two visual manifestations which Gandalf describes, if we imagine those as being deliberate choices of form on Gandalf's part, which I, again, it seems to me the evidence implies, um, yeah, Mike says that he thinks that what most of what Gandalf says and does is very deliberate, and I tend to agree. Again, especially in something like this. Um, what's the message of the rolling and grinding boulders? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to do with that. I'm still thinking about that. One way to understand it, um, <laughs> Frumius Bujum suggests that uh, well, one of the ringwraiths chose the form of their destroyer. <laughs> That's a lovely idea. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Mudmore, you're right. The um, ringwraiths do seem to have uh, meddled in the affairs of wizards. Uh, yes. Yes. Um,
And I agree, certainly the message that the boulders are sending is certainly get out of Rivendell or, you know, you, you, sh- you know, you, you cannot pass is the message. Agreed. Um, maybe Matthew Hershenroder is suggesting the white horses are there spiritually to combat the Nazgul. The boulders are for the horses. Oof, tough, tough, but fair. Um, maybe, um, <laughs> Sam thinks the message is I'm going to get you and your little dog too. Um, yeah. Uh, well, no, so let me, let me try to clarify here. First of all, I don't know that Gandalf has to add anything to kill the horses. There is a great, enormous rushing flood of water coming down those horses are going to drown and or get their necks broken without any assistance from Gandalf. Gandalf doesn't need to add his two cents to the flood in order to oppose the horses, right? The water will do plenty to take care of the horses, I think. Um, I think, therefore, that both of Gandalf's touches that he describes have to be oriented to the Nazgul, right? Um, So the question is... Why? Why boulders, specifically? Um, Could have been anything, right? Why boulders? Shining white riders on great white horses makes sense um, as the opposite number of the Nazgul, as we talked about before. But why boulders? I don't think, again, I don't think it has anything to do with the physical. I don't think it has anything to do with being more effective at killing horses. I don't think it has anything to do uh, with the physical bodies of the Nazgul, I think in both cases, Gandalf is putting forth his own power spiritually to augment the flood. Um, uh, well, Johannes, yeah. Yes, there's a message in the boulders in that Gandalf chose that form and not another. He could have chosen any form. Why boulders? That's all I'm asking. Why boulders? Um, Yeah. I mean, he could have done spears. He could have done... uh, I don't know, like a burst of yeah, dragons, Robert. Exactly. Could have done dragons. Uh, you know. Hmm. Why boulders? Indiana Jones. Yeah. Yeah, it was a reference. He could have done butterflies, Bruinier. Absolutely. He could have. He could have. That would have been intimidating in a different way, right? Um, shrews, precisely. Um, I am not at all sure that they are actual rocks. I'm not convinced that they're... When he says there were many rolling and grinding boulders, it is possible 
that he's saying, in addition to the floodwaters, there were also ginormous rocks rolling down and crushing everything. And I helped with that. Um, that could be what he's saying. Um, but I don't think that's what he's saying. Again, as Matt said, and I agree with him, I added a few touches of my own. Well, the presence of many physical rolling and grinding boulders could also be one of his touches, I suppose. Yeah. See, Mike, I've not been assuming real boulders. I'm not assuming that at all. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's the reason for the non-parallelism. Tawith, I'm not sure, but I am, I think it likely that the boulders are not just spontaneous. Gandalf lists, again, I've added many touches of my own colon. And after the colon comes two things, the white horses and white riders and the boulders, right? Gandalf in this, by the syntax of the sentence, Gandalf is laying claim to the boulders, right? He did the boulders and the riders. Um, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> we did the nose and the hat. Um, yeah. So, but again, I, I am I am utterly resistant to the idea. I am as resistant to the idea that there are just natural boulders spontaneously rolling down, and that's what Gandalf is describing. I am as resistant to that as I was resistant to the idea that the the two other ring wraiths that didn't enter the dell at Weathertop were just uh, waiting to flank uh, the hobbits in case they tried to escape. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't. Uh, I don't think that at all. Um, I think it's, it's again, Gandalf is laying claim to the boulders. My only question is to whether or not these are actual rocks or whether the boulders are also one of these, you know, visual manifestations of Gandalf's power within. Is it just that the waves looked like white horses with shining white riders? And also among those, he also manifested rolling and grinding boulders. Or did Gandalf also contrive to have actual physical rocks rolling down? Tarloniel, I don't think that... Okay. Let's think about this. Gandalf is describing the physical appearance, Right? certainly of the great white horses and shining white riders. So the one question was for whose benefit, uh, for whose benefit um, is he making these visual appearances? Presumably not for Frodo's because Frodo could barely see anything. Um, it's got to be the, if there's a message in this appearance, the message is for the ring rates, right? Um, could they see it, is the question. The horses could see it, but the horses are not in a position to be observing uh, or caring much about the shape of the waves that are uh, rushing towards them. Could the riders see it? Could the ringwraiths see these shapes? I don't think that's the point. Again, Gandalf is not 
just well nathan don't forget nathan says frodo could see it so i assume the ringwraith saw it no they, well you mean because frodo's half in the wraith world yeah um yeah i see what you mean um i think again gandalf's not just doing aesthetics here if he were only doing aesthetics if he were just making the water shaped like horses right um then no <laughs> the ring rates wouldn't appreciate the artistry of the waves that were bearing down on them because they wouldn't see them, right? But there's no question in my mind that it's not merely aesthetic, that he's not just shaping the appearance of things, that he is adding substantive power and that that power has manifested itself in that form. Is that exactly the way that the Black Riders see it? I don't know, but they would certainly perceive Gandalf's power coming to them in this flood as well as the torrent of actual water, right? Um, do they see the shapes of the white horses and white riders? I don't feel any doubt that they did. Um, I think, again, especially since it seems to be for whose benefit are these visible images being projected? I have to think that they are being projected for uh, uh, primarily for the black riders um, benefit. Um, Is Gandalf adding both a spiritual and a physical element to the flood? I'm going to add a physical element by contributing some boulders, right? Contriving to make sure there are some giant rocks also being rolled and ground grinding down the river. Or am I, uh, you know, so I'm going to do that and I'm going to add spiritual power, which is going to manifest itself visually as the white horses and white riders. Um, I, I can believe that. I could believe that Gandalf is doing both. I could also believe that both of those things are spiritual manifestations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah, totally. I don't know if they can see the water coming, but the water does have power, as Belongsmon says. They have a problem with water anyway, um, uh, as we've heard before. Um, yeah, so. Fourth Dauntless, exactly. So Fourth Dauntless says if the boulders are spiritual, the symbolism that comes with them isn't obvious. Exactly. That's just what I was getting at before when I was saying, what's the message there? Um, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. I think it could work. I think I'll have to chew on this a little bit more. I'm not resistant to the idea of there being physical boulders. I can believe that. I'm not sure what I'm trying to, I'm trying to think if that's the best reading though.
Yeah, I don't know. Um, all right, I'm going to sign off after this. Let me take one more stab at this. What I'm looking at again here is the syntax. If I may say so, I added a few touches of my own, colon. You may not have noticed, but some of the waves took the form of great white horses with shining white riders, and there were many rolling and grinding boulders. The argument in my mind, uh, the argument in my mind for, um, spiritual, for, for physical boulders is the parallel there or the lack of parallelism, right? Some of the waves took the form of great white horses with shining white riders and others took the form of rolling and grinding boulders would be unequivocally clear and parallel there. Right. That both of them were. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because uh, uh, evil Dr. Cannon here has shared a, uh, uh, an image from the uh, uh, sort of backstage image from the um, the movies, uh, which has all of the Nazgul in their cloaks and on horses holding blue umbrellas up over their heads. Um, yeah. Anyway, so the lack of parallelism there would suggest the first thing is spiritual, the second thing is physical. I can see that. I think at the end of the day, the thing that gives me the hardest time is trying to figure out why Gandalf would take credit for boulders. How is Gandalf? So what Gandalf is exerting. His, so Elrond is exerting his power to command the flood to come down. Meanwhile, Gandalf is exerting his power to what dislodge large rocks so that they would be rolled down the river with the flood. I mean, that's possible, but it feels weird to me that he would do that. Um, It feels weird to me. Um, yeah, Mike, that there would be more and bigger boulders than would naturally be carried by even so, uh, so great a flood. Yeah. I, and how would he even do it, Gandalf? We don't ever see him doing stuff like that. Rolling big rocks, I mean. Like Gandalf can't chuck boulders at things. We know he can't. Not Gandalf 1.0 anyway. Right? And I'm not even going back to the Hobbit and the burning pine cones and stuff. I just mean... Um, I just mean the... the I mean, even thinking of other... I think of Gandalf at Karathras and Gandalf... Uh, you know, with the wolves, uh, not in The Hobbit, in The Fellowship of the Ring. You know, I... And Moria. I, I mean, you know, if Gandalf could do the, a, 
boulder-chucking thing, you'd think he'd have deployed that maneuver in other points. Um, I just... It feels weird. That whole idea feels weird, that Gandalf made large physical rocks roll down with the flood, that he was somehow taking credit for that. Whereas... So I ask myself the other question. Yeah, well, Fort Thoughtless says Gandalf's usual media are fire and light. Working in water is really weird for him. Yeah, but again, the flood is commanded by Elrond, right? He's only adding his power to the flood. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, again, I don't. Of the two, I think I'm still more comfortable with spiritual boulders than I am with physical. I'm not saying if you believe in the physical boulders that I can prove you're wrong. It just feels to me, um, you know, it just feels to me that spiritual makes more sense to me, I guess. Because you might ask, naturally, if he is manifesting his power spiritually in the water, and that took the form of the horses and riders, why should it also take the form of boulders? Getting which gets back to my old question of why. You know, what's the what's the message? Um and but I think that there is a message there. And the message would be uh as um uh as others said earlier on you know, Arda itself is rising against you, right? You know, this is, uh, uh, this is, it's, you are not only being opposed by our power. We are only, you know, the, the, the power of Arda itself, you know, along with the flood, right? You've got the flood, you know, you've got the earth and you've got the, 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 you know, the, the, along with the water, right? The river itself is opposing them. Um, (laughs) <laughs> the boulders volunteered. No, I'm talking about, I'm theorizing spiritual boulders, right? Spiritual boulders. That's what I'm saying. And no, Mike, but it's, that's what I'm saying. Th- I think the spirit, spiritual boulders do add something. My argument would be that this is the, com- that this is the combined message, right? He is not only saying we as, you know, human agents are coming after you like the shining white riders on, on great white horses, but the earth is rising against it rises against uh and you and rejects you and your master as well right and that's what the spirit the message that the spiritual boulders convey um so this so take this home to your master right um we oppose him arda opposes him uh we're all combining you know uh art the, the the elves the river uh, the wizard, right? We are all combining to, you know, send you the heck home. Um, so anyway, um, (laughs) um, okay. Human agents, not the right word. Of course, you're right, Lincoln. Um, uh, incarnate 
agents is what I meant, I suppose. Um, Trifle still doesn't like the idea of spiritual boulders with the word grinding. But if they're spiritual, both the rolling and the grinding are metaphorical, right? Like that's part of the appearance of the boulder. If you're going to make boulders manifest themselves in the flood, right? Spiritual boulders, then uh, you would show them rolling and grinding, right? Uh, you shall inevitably be ground down by the resistance of the force of Arda rising against you would be the message, right? That the rolling and grinding spiritual boulders would be conveying. Um, uh, yeah, Tarlonio does point out that water does indeed grind, right? It does, like, it makes beaches, right? It turns rocks into sand slowly, right, over time. Um, and Arden Crayon does say that, of course, these would be immaterial boulders grinding immaterial wraiths. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, yeah. All right. Um, we should end there. It's been a lot of discussion. We've had, we've, we've only done one slide today and not quite gotten to the end of their conversation, but we've had a lot of really good discussion here tonight. Um, uh, so let's, let us, let us, let us end it there. Um, I, I would be very interested to hear uh, people's arguments on one side or another of this uh, on the uh, discussion boards for next time. Uh, so I'll be interested to see any forum posts that arise uh, on the question of the spiritual versus physical boulders uh, or the uh, um, the deliberate execution of horses. Uh, exactly. We got we got more than one slide because we got one slide plus half of an old slide or OK, not half, but. We did a little more than one slide. Okay. Excellent. Um, so let's, it's field trip time. So I'm going to say goodbye to, um, uh, to uh, the Twitter folks. Thanks everybody who joined me on Twitter. Uh, and I hope you didn't have to look at me sideways the whole time. I'm still not very confident in how uh, uh, Twitter is broadcasting me these days, but I figure I'll keep giving it a shot. Uh, so thanks everybody for joining me there. Uh, uh, feel free to join us on twitch.tv slash Signum U as always. Thanks everybody. Uh, oh, that's it. There we go. Okay. All right. All right. And I just made the joke. Are we talking about igneous rocks or metaphorical rocks? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Okay. So tonight we were kind of debating about the uh, field trip tonight because we have lots of ground still to cover now that we have finished uh, um, looking around the Valley of Rivendell. Um, but we have a lot of ground to cover, but you know, when, when the ring begins to move South, we're going to do a Regian and continue to follow in the footsteps of the fellowship. But as the footstep, as the fellowship is more or less stationary, uh, for the next many months, um, we, uh, uh, are going to have to find some other things to look at in the meantime. Um, uh, yeah. so I think we should go to... Uh, I think we should go to Kellendim, uh, right. and uh, start that. We've been kind of putting that off. It's one of the older areas in Eriador. If we just go, mm -hmm. 
I'm going to, I'm going to map it here for a second. It's going out to the area door map. Um, so we have been, we sort of, we started off in the Shire and we've been following the fellowship. Well, the proto fellowship, uh, through Bree and the Lone Lands and the Troll Shaws, and we've ended up here in Rivendell. Um, in the meantime, we also explored up. We did Even Dim in the North Downs. Uh, and uh, did we do Forakal? I don't think no, we did. No, I don't, I don't think we no, have. We'll get to Forakal. And we started yeah, well, doing, that'll we, come up. We started doing Angmar, too. Um, who knows, maybe before we get to the end of the Council of Elrond, we'll have a chance to do the Arid Luin and Angmar and the Misty Mountains and Forakel. But um, anyway, um, okay, so I wanted to, so the one area here in sort of main stream Eriador here and sort of the heart of Eriador that we didn't do um, was, uh, uh, was Arid Luin over here which is where we get Thorin's Hall, uh, the halls uh, in exile uh, of the Longbeards uh, after they sort of settled down and began to rebuild themselves, uh, and then also Kelendim, the home of the elves. Did we go to Thorin's Hall? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, I, my, I can't really remember. I, I don't think we have. I, I don't, don't think, think we, we have. I think we were waiting for the actual Longbeards beards or descendants of the long beards at this point or what's left to come into the play to study them yeah which we will so yeah well anyway we okay so f this is arid lewin the blue mountains uh region um so let's um let's head over there i i know i was saving kelendim at least for this uh time that is since we are going to be in Rivendell and therefore in elf country anyway. So let's head over there, but let's go by way of the Shire. Okay. That's, so I was just about to suggest that. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to okay. Mickle Delving and start from there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm just going to go out to the uh, Western West uh, Bree stable master here. And go straight from there to Mickle Delving. Yeah, my problem with remembering where we've done field trips um, is that, uh, I mean, of course, I visited these places and talked about them in game in other contexts, you know, like you know, between Grifflet and various Wigan streams and stuff like that. Like, you know, I can't. Uh, I kind of, kind of can't remember like which show I talked about which stuff in. So um, I'm sure someone has an Excel sheet about that. There is an Excel sheet actually. There's a Google sheet on that which I have. I, I need to go and consult that so that I can. Yeah. Uh, I'll definitely, uh, definitely be able to find that. Um, but okay, boy, I haven't actually been to the West Gate of Bree in what feels like forever. <laughs> yeah. we've, been, we've been heading down south Keep going in the other ages. direction yeah. yeah it just like feels weird to I, turn in this direction well even if we'd been to Kalondon before i think it it merits revisiting after looking at rivendell to see Certainly. what similarities we see exactly exactly um certainly does so we're not oh, going to ride straight there though we're going to go to the shire and we're going to go to mickle delving it's okay, I got some major lag here because of the festival. Ah, right. 
Stop putting fireworks on. Um, to interject just a little bit, it might be of interest to know that Scenario, one of the uh, SSG devs mm-hmm. who uh, who has been working on updating all the old areas and whatnot, uh, somebody asked him on the forums today is, what was there an area in the game that he would like to go back and add more to, but hadn't had the opportunity to do so? And he answered uh, this morning, the landscape between Needlehole and Arid Lewin, uh-huh. it's always bugged him that Arid Lewin is its own little unconnected island. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. That's great. And I, I always thought Kalandum seemed, uh, you know, like it could use a little more fleshing out because it's supposed to be like one of the major hubs, but, you know, everything's in its neighbor, Dweeland, you know? Yes. Yes, it's true. It's, it, it is a little bit odd there. All right. Is everybody here? I think we, I think everybody's here. I'm um, almost uh, just limping along here. Right? Oh, here you come. Okay. Yep. All right. Um, oh, you wrote here on your own, Steve. I see. Right. I'm a hunter. <laughs> okay, oh, you're a hunter. Yeah, um, so, uh, best way is to go through Waymeet? Yes, I think so. I mean, we could go overland, but uh, probably simpler just to go to Waymeet. Okay. Uh, let's head out to Waymeet. It's funny, one, one of the things we were discussing earlier is that it seems kind of a shame. You know, many of us are based in Landreval. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there are many places that we could go to that are kind of challenging to get to. And, you know, we have to we struggle with the fact that, uh, you know, our characters are still low level on other servers. Um, yeah. And then, you know, we come to we come to Landreval finally again and we're like, oh, let's go to a starter area. With <laughs> starter area. To. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so. but there we go. Um, that's that's fine. Yeah, I don't mind. Although, yeah, it's it's let's high to low is not as as much of a hassle as it fits. You know, I hope everyone remembered they had to, which server we took the Angmar quests on. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm pretty sure I did the Angmar quests on pretty much all of them, but I might not have. It will do. Yeah, it be good. Now that I'm trying to get a Valori on every server. Yeah, I have this big checklist, but uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know. Do Moria, um, get the get the Angmar stones. Yes. Oh, and the Moria stuff, yeah. 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 A, most of the servers I haven't done Moria on. Um that will be fun. Um <laughs> Yes, and several years off, but I will still probably have a level fifty two on every server then, yes. and then I'll be in trouble. <laughs> yes. Okay, so let's see. On the on the Shire map, you can see we're heading up towards the northwest corner here. So we're coming down into the bog. Rashik bog. I keep... Evangelist stench. Yeah. <laughs> I keep running into the walls. Um, <laughs> here's one interesting thing here. One of the things which is really kind of only uh, I never really thought about before, but I'm thinking about it now even more clearly because I don't think I ever was here at the Rushik Bog since they did the cosmetic upgrade to the Shire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's way more uh, plant life here than I recall. Oh, yeah. If you're a hobbit, you're pretty much blind. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, exactly. I mean, this, this, these tall grass and reeds. Um, one of the points I make is that a lot of times swampy land like this, especially looking out over and seeing all of the sort of skeletal trees, right? This looks almost like an area of desolation, right? And we see that kind of thing in lots of other places, like the dead marshes obviously suggest themselves as a place where we see, you know, sort of swampland being associated with, you know, sort of a desolated land. Um, This land is not, this is like one of the most wholesome bogs that we get in the whole game. Really. Um, like the rush gore isn't so bad either as far as on a, on the desolation um, scale. Right. Um, though it is right next to the brown lands in the great river area, which is completely desolated. Um, but, but again, this, you know, thinking about like when you look around here, yes, there are trees that have no leaves because, and which does make it look as if this bog, right. Was, uh, you know, used to be forest and then a bog kind of overtook the forest barren. and sort of yeah. <laughs> drowned out all the trees. Um, kind of like the pond out in my front yard, which was made by beavers, which killed a section of the woods and made a big old uh, pond instead. Um, mm-hmm. But the main thing, you know, when I look around here, the primary thing that I notice is just greenness, right? This is a very green bog, very much unlike uh, yeah. the, you know, the, the horrible, like the slimy horribleness of the, of the dead marshes, for instance. Yeah. It's just another ecosystem. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I live out in Virginia, the wetlands are important. Yeah. You know, they're, they're way full of life and they need to be, you know, respected as nature, even if it doesn't accommodate us. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think in general, you know, and even the, even the mobs that they choose here in the game seem to suggest I mean, we've got giant slugs, which are gross, but, you know, no, not necessarily more evil than like the giant shrews, right? Yeah, yeah. What we get in both cases really is like garden pests made larger than life. Mm -hmm. They don't seem threatening so much as just kind of weird and maybe a little sad when you kill them. Right. Don't slugs... Aren't I'm I'm not a gardener. Um, don't slugs damage plants? Does that happen? Yes. Am I am I right in thinking that? Yes, yes, they are. They they um yeah they eat plants. Most uh, potatoes and root vegetables, especially, I think. Yeah, yeah. So both was that hobbit shooting at somebody? At the bugs. Oh, the bugs mm-hmm. were chasing us. Okay. Oh so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, we all rode through, and the Hobbit opened the Hobbit guard at the gate opened fire, and I'm like, "Whoa! How winded Needlehole get this hostile?" Um. Anyway, okay. Um. So. Head, head to head. Yeah, I mean, I guess we outstayed our welcome in the shop. I get that here. way with well, I get that way with mosquitoes myself too. Oh, right. Yeah. No, I, that is understandable. Now I remember we did talk about Needlehole that, and that yeah. was definitely in a field trip back in the very old days when we were still touring around the Shire. Um, I remember. But, um, but anyway, yeah. So I, I kind of like how, again, the mobs, the mobs don't suggest that there is anything unnatural uh, in the um, creatures that live in the, there's the, the dwarves, right. But there's, yes. uh, uh, you know, like the, the 
the wicked dwarves. Yeah, that's an invasion. Yeah. That's an invasion. That's yeah. not a that's yeah. not their home. Right. That's an indicator of how dangerous the bounds are, uh, as Brandon was just saying. Exactly. Okay, so now here is the boundary. We're like okay. about to leave the Shire here, right? Yep. Okay. Now this bridge is obviously a dwarf bridge, which is yes. just what you'd expect since the dwarves built the road and all. Very Art Deco. Yeah. So this has got to be dwarves. And again, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. The cobblestones look kind of dwarvish, though not very obviously. It's a hex grid. We're it's going into battle. <laughs> Hooray. Um, yeah, these, but these, these pillars on the edges with the, the sort of, uh, you know, not design around the edges and everything. That and looks very steel rebar coming out the top. Kind of what at the top of the. Yeah, it kind of looks like steel rebar. <laughs> uh, kind of. Or bronze, maybe not bronze. shiny enough. That it retracts a lot of lightning. Yeah, I don't know, but um, uh, but anyway. This is. Uh, I, I like the little Nordic uh, sort of the knot work. Yeah, exactly. Which is there. which is pretty typical of what we see in dwarf areas. Um, okay, right. But anyway, so like I said, you would expect to find it to be a dwarf bridge because the dwarves made the road. So similarly, as we continue along, we see another bridge, which is. Same exact construction, same cobblestones, same mm-hmm. kind of merlins. I don't know what the idea of this is. It's like a very inefficient guardrail, if that's what that's meant to be. Uh, looks but, like something like some sort of rampart you'd shoot arrows from or something. Yeah, it does kind of. Not quite, but a little bit. Not quite sure the purpose there. But anyway, again, dwarf road, dwarf bridge makes sense. Now we're transitioning out of the Hobbit area, but we haven't fully transitioned out, right? This is Mm -hmm. the Russian gate here. We see hobbits and dwarves talking to each other. Right. Townsperson, townsperson. Huh. I totally forgot about this. Many tiny horses. Little area here. We have a stable over there? Yeah, there's just, there's a lot of this being here but nothing to do yeah is this a farm it looks like a, just sort of a, i think it's a i think it's a horse post i think this is where you switch out your horse for a fresh one looks yeah, like maybe. a coach post maybe yeah we've got a big old wagon over here yeah a couple of wagons over here yeah yeah some not with passengers a, it's some not without, like some a trading repairs. post like nobody's there's no merchants here setting up shop Right? Yeah, As it if, does feel like that's missing. Yeah, you'd expect that in a place like this. Uh-huh. Or or a place to rest and eat while your horses are resting. Yeah. I mean, there's a picnic table here. Obviously, it's BYOB. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Uh, it's just, yeah. It's more of, a, more of a truck stop than anything. Exactly. <laughs> Katriana, it is like a rest stop, but it's like one of those rest stops that doesn't 
have a building you can go into and use the bathroom. It just has it's got know, toilets like and vending machines. And so that's potties. it. Yeah, yeah it maybe have the vending showers. machines. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe but... a vending machine, but only like coffee and some nutter butters. Exactly. Not not really bad coffee. Not not real food. Not real food. Yeah. Doesn't have an Aunt Annie's pretzel or something. And this, of course, is a Hobbit hedge. Yeah. Right. So the Hobbits constructed this and we obviously have the Hobbit dome, you know, circle and we set within a hedge. So this looks kind of like the high hay here. Um, And we have these, you know, very characteristic Hobbit lampposts. The ones you bang your head on when you walk through. Yeah. Except these are nicely high up. Look at that. This is definitely made for other heights. Up on the hill, we have a couple dwarf posts. Looking mm-hmm. like little, cute little uh, dwarvish pukul dwarves. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're, I don't think we can get closer to them, right? Because we got to go through this nah. gate. I don't think we actually go past them when we ride through either. More's the yeah. pity. And notice while the hedge is hobbit, though, the stone wall up here is still dwarven. Where? Uh, back here by the waterfall. Oh, 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 around the edge, yeah. Uh huh. Right, right. Yep. Right. Well, they're not working everything. Yeah, no, this is clearly constructed by dwarves, but fenced by the hobbits. That's really interesting. That's it collaboration. Definitely suggest collaboration. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so where do we get to when we go through? Yeah, it is kind of annoying that we can't just ride straight. And here we are suddenly in the Arid Luin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's almost like we've, you know, ridden for a day already and we're nowhere near where we were. Yeah, look at these gates. These were nowhere near in sight. Yeah. Yeah. That would be nice to smooth out. Why is there a pillar up on the hill, too? Both sides. Watchtower. Watchtower watching over the gaps. Ah, that's just a pillar. That's not a tower. That's like the same. They're like matching these pillars. Ah. It's the same as this. Oh, I thought you, the ones on the top there? Yeah, up on the hill. Beacons? Oh, they're identical to these. Maybe you can climb up these. Maybe. Or in theory. I mean, that's the only logical reason it'd be there. So if these were all towers you could climb up into and keep oh, watch over. No doors. This is just a plinth. I guess arguably the door could be around the other side, but it doesn't look it's like it's dwarven. That. They hide stuff. <laughs> it's probably a Not secret dwarven. door in the Yeah, it's a secret door. What, Opens like every in... Arbor Day. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, no, uh, Brandon, exactly. I don't see a thrush anywhere, so we might be out of luck. Oh, we have a Hildefons took the second. There we go. What did he do to get stuck out here? What trouble did you cause here, laddie? He is far from home. And he's got that same crest, everyone. What is that crest? Wait, where is he? Right here, this little... Little Hobbit Hildefons took the second. Oh, I didn't even see him in the bushes. Who has been exiled into the middle of nowhere. (laughs) 
the sort of free people's tabard we keep seeing. Oh, you're right. He's wearing the same. Yeah. Right. He's wearing the same crest or whatever it is that the elves in Rivendell and on the the Uh last bridge. Well, yeah. This is an adventuresome toque. My goodness. Does this mean he's enlisted? Must be. What if this is one of the ones Gandalf spirited away and we never heard about again? (laughs) Hey, that's a theory. I like that theory. Like I said, either that or he's gotten himself into a spot of bother at home and had to leave. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's an awesome theory. I like that. He's gone off and he's joined the elves. (laughs) Um, He escalated from, you know, from climbing trees to visiting elves. Uh, and uh, is one of those cousins of Bilbo that was never seen again. <laughs> I like that. That's what I would choose. What does he actually say? Uh, oh, he's uh, just doing the bounder quest. He, yeah, the bounder quest, but he's not dressed like a bounder. He's not? Because the, the bounders don't wear those, do they? No, they, were, they were yellow, it's green in the hat with the feather in it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, right, yeah, the feather cap that they're offering me as a quest reward here. Uh-huh. Right. What um, an enigma this guy is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I think that this took, uh, is one of the ones who vanished and has taken up service <laughs> with the elves. Makes some sense. Mm-hmm. Makes some sense. Okay. He left home too soon. <laughs> yeah. Hey, look, the cobblestones here are the same as on the bridge. Yeah, they got those hex ones there. Yeah. Which implies that even though we can see some elf buildings, this is not an elfin road. Still the dwarf road. Still the dwarf road. Oh, that's uh, that's to the homesteads over there. We don't want to know if we want to go down there. The road changes, though. Where? Oh, it does. the homesteads. Yeah. Oh. Uh-huh. Oh, right. Aha. Yes. This is, this is flagstones buried in. This is very similar to the roads we get in Rivendell, where they made a road and just couldn't be bothered to keep it up. Right. Exactly. There are. You can see, look at the dwarf road. There are no dandelions coming out of this. Yeah. So this is elvish pavement, and this is dwarvish pavement. Yeah. Well, we got some dandelions over here, but this is, it's pretty sturdy stuff. Yeah. Agreed. It's not quite much as more green and overgrown. Now they're still not like curbs, right? No. Um, but as you can see, the grass is trying to eat it up again. Yeah, definitely. Just kind of looking but This around. is definitely well-traveled. Yeah. Oh, I love how it's always spring and they got the flowering trees over here. Yes. Oh, and the flowering trees up among the buildings up on the cliff there above the waterfall. It's just gorgeous. I know. This is Duolund that we're looking at, right? Uh, yes, this is Duolund. Okay. Let's, um, let's continue to just ride past, go down to Kilondim and, um, so we're going to go all the way around this gorgeous yep. city. So, yeah. So take a look at the bridge up ahead. That's an elf bridge for sure. Ah, 
Hmm. First of all, there well, are barely any handrails. <laughs> right. No, but this this has got those same Merlin edges. The towers on the on the edge are different and are the same as was the, the gateway. Uh-huh. But the bridge itself looks the same as the other. Oh dwarf no, no, bridge. I'm talking the one like this. Oh, this the next the, one. The this next is one. the dwarf bridge. Yeah, the, and next the next one. one is this the is the dwarf bridge. Right. Because they're like right next to each other. Here's your point of comparison here. Oh yeah, like I just fell off it, so that yeah, like this makes twisty it an elf bridge. Yeah. staircase of coordination death. I might have to dismount across the. You're right. This is an elf bridge. Yeah, this is the elf yeah. bridge. This is one. Baseline Dex 3 bridge. Yes. Yes. With a little trellis up above. Marble mosaic. Yeah, once again, they they love things overhead that do nothing. Yes. And with the road still dwarfish. And here, yep. here's here's a dwarf pillar. I don't know if it's the same as those other. Oh pillars. yeah, yeah. No, that's a dwarf marker. It looks just like the stuff that was sticking out on the top of the other pillars. Yeah. But the part that I said looked like rebar. I think it was right. this. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah. I never noticed. Look at the underside. It looks like a mushroom. Caps. Looks like mushrooms. I never noticed that either. Did it used to look like that? I think yep. so. I don't. I just don't think I noticed till yeah, now. I never noticed that either. Look at all the dwarf markers here. They're all over the place, <laughs> on both sides of the road, almost yep. like, you know, defiantly marking the road. Collaboration it, or encroachment. Right. Let it be perfectly clear that this is a dwarf road, despite the fact yeah. that it's running right underneath. Well, if we want to get to Kalandin, we got to take this Elven road, which is exactly, and the pavement shifts. Because yep, yep, yep. the dwarf road does not extend down this way. So, which do we think came first, the dwarf road? Yes. And then, or the elven road? I think the dwarf road came first. Um, hmm. I mean, notice, of course, like the elves. You would think if anyone would be beating a path, you know, out here to the arid Luan area, it would be the elves, because like this is where they sail from, and you know, it's always been a, uh, oh, I love the random arches, random arches. Yeah, the elves were traveling this way to go to, you know. To go to the sea. Yeah. You to know, go to, to the sea. Visit Cirdan and, and, you know, yep. for those who are taking ships. So, um, but they don't seem to need or want a paved road necessarily to get there. Um, <laughs> yeah. That does sound a little counterintuitive. But the dwarves pave the road, right, for their, um you know, for their travel, for their merchants and stuff. Um, So why did the elves pave this road? Well, that seems to me to suggest, first of all, this does go up to Duolon, so there's a little bit more of a, you know, a a state highway kind of thing rather than just being an interstate, right? You know, this is not... uh, But also just the way that it connects with the door with the dwarf road uh-huh. seems suggestive, um, uh, because I don't know. It would seem almost like an an invitation, which is interesting, right? To invite the dwarves to like, hey, you know, you can come down this way, 
feel free to visit if you like. Um, <laughs> I think they're roads like their secrets guard themselves. <laughs> right. Look at the towers. Oh. Those are watchtowers. Those are beautiful. Those remind me so much of Tolkien's illustrations that I saw. Yes. Tolkien designs the beautiful colors. Yes. Fun shapes. Yes. Look how many of them there are. Remember the Arnorian ruined towers that we were seeing along the Brandywine? Right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. As if, uh, you know, which looked like they were designed to sort of keep watch to make sure that no enemy was coming up the the river towards Lake Evendale. Yeah, big, right? big blocky battle looking thingies. Yes. yes, very much. It's not only the shape of these, which looks so much more beautiful, but also the frequency of them mm-hmm. seem quite extraneous. You know, if all... Well, we're looking at the housing area over here. This is, that's where they, that's the village where everybody lives. What, up towards the northeast, you mean? Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. we're looking at the housing areas. Yeah. Exactly. But I'm looking down just in just in front there, right? I mean, we've got oh, this little island. Yeah, we've got this one on the little island, and it's not built for defense, right? Yeah, you know, it's probably built to push boats that got stuck out. Yeah. I mean, that's just a tower in the middle of the water. A nice decorative, fancy tower in the middle of the water, and another matching one up on top of that hill. But then another one right there, and then another one right down there. Um, but look at the scale. Look at look at the size of the door compared to it. I mean, this is a huge tower in the middle of the right yes. island in the river. Exactly. Yes, this is a huge tower. It's not. This is not a. This is not a lighthouse, right? This is not a. Um, this is not a simple. Uh, you know, lookout tower or, or a beacon tower or something. or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, people would live there clearly. I say clearly. I would think they would. Um, and again, people I would, who hate other people. <laughs> <laughs> this is where the naughty elves go to live. That's right. They that's where Valori would live. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then, of course, we get Kellandim down in the uh, down in the valley here along the river. Well, let's start here next time. It's getting okay. late. Well, it's was late from the beginning. We'll start down here next, having traveled here and looked a little bit at the land as we come through from the Shire. Um, let's um, uh, let's we can we can transport directly to Kalendim next time because uh, we'll be down. Let's go down. That's to a main hub too. It's one of the easiest places to get to. Yeah, certainly. No one should have any hard times with this. And that's good because it's we're on honor next week. <laughs> yes, yes, we're on honor next time. And here, look at this. Narnian doesn't have this stable master. Having said how easy it is to get here. <laughs> what there we go. I found something interesting I've never seen before. Hmm. What's that? Up what under the part? bridge to Dweeland from hmm. the housing area, uh-huh. there is a there's a statue. Uh, a, I presume it's of Gilgalad, uh-huh. but there's an elf statue standing here in ruins. Oh yes, I, I know. I'm familiar with that statue. It's part of the lore. It's a lore master ah. uh, destination. So. 
Clearly, I need to play my lore master more often. Okay. I think I discovered it trying to look for those dumb flowers, and I couldn't find enough, and I was kept trying to click on the statue, convinced it was going to do something. <laughs> yeah. Back in the early days. Right. Before Lotro Wiki, or before I knew it existed. Cool. Cool. All right, so we will begin exploring the town here next time, and then we'll kind of expand out across Arid Lewin. We'll go back to do a lend up on the hill, and we'll uh, sort of look around. We've got plenty of time to explore here during our stay in Rivendell, so we'll do that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I will sign off for now. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. We'll still be here again next week. Uh, and um, I appreciate all of you joining me, and we will... Uh, We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.